Hello and welcome to the People, Place and Nature podcast. The environmental world is a complex, integrated system, and often the solutions are far more nuanced and complex than most people realise, especially when you start to factor in things like farming, people, food, health, ecology, and, you know, it's something that we really try to, to narrow down. So in this episode, we talk with Dr. Matthew Reed and Pippa Simmons from the University of Gloucestershire on a wide range of topics about intensive farming, how people perceive food and its impacts on our health. This is a slightly longer episode than normal as there's a lot to talk about here and it's important to understand that when it comes to the environment, things are not cut and dried. There's simply not always a good outcome um, or we need a mix of solutions to tackle a problem or a series of trade-offs. It's not one solution that's often the way forward. So for me, this episode was particularly interesting as a lot of my work ends up being discussing trade-offs and how we actually need to educate people to, to understand the environmental world as, as best we can. So please let me know your thoughts in the comments below as well, as we would genuinely be really interested to hear what you think of some of the discussions in this episode. And of course, I hope you enjoy the episode. So have fun. Sorry to interrupt, but we have a quick message from one of our sponsors. And it's that we're thrilled to announce that Marshalls is the sponsor of this episode. As the UK's leading supplier of sustainable concrete and natural stone products for the built environment, Marshalls is committed to doing the right things for the right reasons, delivered in the right way, ethically and sustainably. From fairly traded stone to low carbon concrete bricks, Marshalls believes we can create better spaces, putting people, communities and the environment first. Find out more about the firm's green initiatives in our podcast links below. Good morning to the both of you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really interested to have a conversation with you both about um, agriculture, sort of food, food production, its impact on, on the climate and landscape and all of those side of things. But I thought first, it'd probably be really helpful to get a little bit of an introduction from you both, just to explain a bit about your backgrounds and kind of the work you do, if that's okay. Um, yeah, so my name is Pippa Simmons. I'm uh, currently a third year PhD student at the CCRI at the University of Gloucestershire. I've got a background in medicine. I originally studied and became a doctor, worked as a junior doctor for a few years before deciding I wanted to go more into the sort of big picture public health kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, ended up moving away from the UK to go and study global health and through that came across this idea of food systems and got really interested in climate, um, which WHO obviously is now saying is the biggest threat to human health. Climate change is the biggest threat to human health globally. So that kind of led me down this route and now I'm here working um, with farmers and such, um, looking at sort of livestock, climate change, all these questions about uh, how we use our land and how we grow our food. Okay, fantastic. Um, yeah, my name's Matt Reed. I'm the director of the CCRI, and um, my researchers cover people doing all sorts of farming, from very small-scale people working in cities all the way through up to farmers running really big estates. Um, mm. But my big focus has been on organic agriculture and also our relationship with technology in agriculture. You know, how agriculture is a form of technology, how do we relate to that, how do we manage that as a community and a society. Okay, that's really interesting. Some quite diverse sort of backgrounds there as well, which is really interesting. I didn't realise you came into it from the health side um, initially, so that's really interesting to find out. I'll question you that on, on you that question you on that later. Um, so I thought we could start by talking a bit about sort of the current state of affairs of sort of UK agriculture, specifically around sort of livestock, because it's such a hot topic at the moment, and it kind of feeds into the later things we can talk about when it comes to organics. So I don't know if you guys want to set the scene a little bit with regards to sort of sheep and cattle and what's sort of happening in that 
world at the moment? Sure, yeah. So I suppose we can sort of start with the basics in terms mm. of um, cows and sheep are ruminants. Mm. What that means is they've got four stomachs and they've got this large first stomach called a rumen. And what happens in the rumen is that it's um, for digesting grass and they can digest cellulose and tough plant matter. And they do that with the assistance of uh, bacteria. And the byproduct of that process is methane, which comes out when the cow burps. You know, when you see um, cows and sheep in the field chewing the cud, they're, sort of, they're regurgitating their food to chew it again. And that's part of this like clever digestive process. And obviously over the last sort of 15, 20 years, there's been increasing awareness of this and increasing concerns in some areas around the, the methane emissions from that. Um, Methane is a greenhouse gas, along with um, carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Um, it's considered to be more potent, though it is shorter lived in the atmosphere. So since kind of, I think it's 2014, um, we had the big FAO report, which drew attention to this. And then we've also had various kind of documentaries, um, campaigns and so forth that have raised awareness around this issue. And then now I think we're getting a little bit more into depth with it in terms of like, understanding the science, understanding the sort of complexity of this. It's not as simple as perhaps we first thought. And um, in terms of what this means um, at the sort of local level and what we, how we farm and how we, how we produce food. Okay. Yeah, I remember I met a um, climate scientist um, at Harvard and he was, he was working on the, on the sort of methane life cycle and he was saying it sort of stays active in the atmosphere for about 300 years or something around that, I think, from memory, I could be wrong, but something around that. And he was saying, so we kind of have to factor that into like the long-term planning of like mitigating um, our impacts on the climate. But obviously the real problem is now. So being able to mitigate it now is still incredibly important. Um, and we've got to think ahead um, as to how we kind of reduce things as much as we can now and the best way to approach that. So talking about um, sort of cattle, how do they differ from, from sheep? So is sheep exactly the same way or that, do they consume things differently? Um, so it's broadly the same kind of process. Um, cattle tend to um, select different foods than sheep do. They tend mm. to be more able to graze rougher areas, um, mm. whereas sheep are a little bit more selective. But yeah, broadly it's the same kind of process. And obviously we have a lot of um, areas in the UK, talking about the sort of UK specifically, that are really well suited to um, producing sheep and cattle. We have these upland areas where um, hardy animals can graze, where you can't necessarily always grow crops. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a big question in that respect in terms of the, um, the historical way those um, communities have developed and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really important to be specific because obviously, you know, we often deal in global figures. So mm-hmm. how animals are raised will vary from country to country or biome to biome. So in a North American context, cattle may be ranging some vast prairie, mm-hmm. semi, semi-wild and then rounded up occasionally, or they may be in a, effectively in a shed with the food brought to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they're in a shed with the food brought to them, a kind of feedlot, then that's incredibly energy, water, carbon, methane, mm. you know, dense mm-hmm. way of doing it. Whereas extensive grazing that's traditionally kind of appeared to make use of land that otherwise wouldn't be productive is a very different mm-hmm. thing. 
So it's about how those cattle are raised, or equally, you know, the example of, say, maybe in Brazil, where we might think that cattle have been turned out into land that is cleared jungle. Mm. Well, you know, if you've cleared a rainforest, then that's enormously damaging. So I think that the specifics are really important about how how that occurs. And then, you know, thinking about particular farming practices, again, may kind of nuance what we want to say. But for a lot of people, cattle in particular have become, uh, as you say, Niall, a kind of very controversial topic, but in part because they're seen as a quick fix. Yeah. You know, if, 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 you, if we can just stop this, mm-hmm. then that will stop the methane, that will stop the damage to the environment in terms of clearing forests so let's focus on this and I think there's maybe as always more nuance that we need to think through. Yeah absolutely I mean I know in Brazil for instance it's a major part of their economy and they're a developing country Mm. you know I was there just a few weeks ago and you don't realize that only 45% of the country has sanitation for instance so for them the climate becomes a, very much the least of their concerns in many instances when it comes to, you know, actually where do we put our resources, where do we put our time. Now, luckily, those things are changing and they're starting to use that as a, as an approach instead to help, you know, strengthen their economy and advance their economy into new areas. But for many countries, that's not necessarily an easy thing to do or, or the case, which is the other thing you have to you have to bear in mind. So I think it's important as well to think about it in the in the global context, like you say, because we don't tend to have so many large sort of factory farms here in the UK, whereas in America, for instance, or and Brazil as well, they do have these very large um, factory farms where it's kind of the worst of all worlds. You're not really getting the use of the animals in the wild actually involved in any sort of ecosystem. They're just there taking water and producing waste that contaminates rivers and all of these things. So there is kind of a balance that has to sort of be struck. Um, but in a UK context, I see sheep coming up an awful lot more than cattle. And you hear so many, I hear in, in my travels, a huge amount of farmers that have worked in dairy or, or with cattle that are actually just going bankrupt, whereas it doesn't necessarily seem to be the same for sheep. And sheep quite often seem to be a major sort of point of contention here because of obviously the uplands and them being so heavily grazed. So what's your kind of view on, on that perhaps? So I think, um there's different ways that you can graze sheep, right? Mm-hmm. So there's like, and I think what we're seeing now is this increasing awareness around um, more regenerative practices. Mm-hmm. So regenerative agriculture, it's kind of defies definition in a little bit, but that's this approach of um, doing things in a more, a way that's more aligned with nature. Mm-hmm. So if we think about the way that um, large herbivores would have moved around historically, they wouldn't have stayed in one place all the time. You know, they would have been moved yeah. along by predators. We used to have wolves and so mm-hmm. forth here. So it's sort of approaches that mirror that a little bit more so that you're like moving the animals on regularly. So they're just taking away the sort of excess in terms of the plant matter and allowing it to regenerate mm-hmm. rather than like taking stuff um, really like down to the earth. That's quite different than this kind of approach of just having sheep in a set area, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and I think there's a lot more um, kind of farmer-led approaches happening in terms of approaches like um, regenerative agriculture, agroecology, which is kind of a bit of a big overlap in the Venn diagram, I would say, um, and that kind of learning around how we do things. 
I would also say that um, I think if we look back further historically, the way that British agriculture is set up is that there was a real push after World War II to produce more. Mm-hmm. All the incentives, um, the way that the EU common agricultural, common agricultural policy was designed was to incentivize production to make sure that we had enough food to feed everyone, which was obviously important at the time. Mm-hmm. And the sort of um, unintended consequence of that is that it's been at the expense of the environment, at the expense of nature sometimes. And we've really focused on things like, you know, green revolution technologies like mm-hmm. fertilizers, like using animal feed, um, pesticides and so forth. And I think now we're starting to see that that's, um, we've see, we're seeing the consequences of that and the need to change. And it's also partly being driven by the fact that a lot of these inputs, so things like fertilizers, have become dramatically more expensive in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And that's causing people to have a real rethink, both in terms of the environment, but also in terms of um, the economic side of things. Yeah, I think absolutely. I know, um, so the example of sort of moving sheep and animals around a lot more. So is that mob grazing, what it's referred to as? Yeah, so there's a few, I think there's a lot of different terms for it. So mm-hmm. some people call it mob grazing, some people call it holistic grazing, and um, I'm certainly not an expert in the different types of that. Um, mm-hmm. But all of them share this idea that you're doing something that's a, um, closer to the way herbivores would move around naturally, you're moving them regularly. Some people, it's like every few days. I've heard of people moving every, you know, twice a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's different systems that work for different people, but it's often doing things like what it practically means is sectioning off areas of a field or of a wood pasture with electric fence, mm-hmm. portable electric fence, and then moving the animals very frequently onto fresh grazing. Yeah, I've seen I've seen an example before where they sort of did corridor planting of trees. Mm-hmm. So they went for sort of an agroforestry mm-hmm. or wood pasture um, approach, and they had the cows grazing beneath trees. They had a real mix of trees because they were just playing around really with whatever they could find. So they even had some monkey puzzle, very strange place. And, um, but the cows were there grazing beneath all of this yeah. and they changed them, I think, twice every day. Um, and they were able to have a lot more density of cows in a much smaller space. Mm-hmm. But it also created sort of a mo- more of a mosaic of habitats. Mm-hmm. So you kind of, as you say, you're, you're getting that, that real benefit in terms of biodiversity, but also it can be very helpful for the farmer but not only could he have a slightly larger herd of cattle and it wasn't poaching the ground so much because the tree roots and everything were helping maintain the soils, um, he then also had the product of fruit from some of the trees mm. and, and wood as well. And he could also use it as fodder um, if he needed to, um, you know, trim the trees back, harvest it and use it for fodder to help su- um, supplement their diet mm. um, in the winter and things too. So it was quite an effective way to sort of look at it. But the trouble is, I suppose it's all quantities of scale, isn't it? It's when you start looking at these very large farms or factory farms, transitioning to that is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's something where um, we maybe, you know, we it's very hard to identify a typical farmer. Mm. You know, she or he, you know, we have averages. So, you know, it might be average age 56, 57, which is actually quite old to be the principal of a business. But that kind of obscures the, the fact that, you know, the daughters and sons may actually be playing an active role because these mm-hmm. are very often transgenerational businesses where you've still got parents of the active farmer influencing mm-hmm. what's happening. So these are complex, complex kind of family business matrices where these things are happening. And I think that 
all the examples that you've been talking about are enormously positive and yeah. farmer-led. And I think farmers are incredibly good at coming up with pragmatic solutions and being able to sort of work out how they can do things better. But it's giving them that space that I think is really difficult. Mm-hmm. That actually, they're under enormous pressure, as people were saying about input prices. So dairying is a great example because dairying perversely can be quite family friendly mm-hmm. in that you get a milk check regularly. Mm-hmm. So if you've got kids and they need money, then you get a milk check pretty regularly. That keeps your income flowing over. Yeah, that's great. You know, yeah. who wouldn't want that? It's not very family friendly because you're up in the wee small hours in the morning having to milk the cattle. It's enormously hard on mm. people and animals and the environment. And it's a treadmill. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to get faster and faster, more and more efficient, because we don't, as c- consumers, we don't want to pay that much for milk. Yeah. You know, so the price is being pushed down. This is a rare occasion now where the price has been pushed up. Um, so those kind of, how do we create space where farmers can talk to one another, talk to other people, and say, yeah, we want to do mob grazing. And although we don't have factory farms in the UK, we do have some pretty intensive forms of agriculture that have become more intensive. And I think that's another dialogue that we need to have is about the intensity on people, animals, the environment of these forms. But so, you know, in dairying, um, you then start to move to, you know, planting fields with only ryegrass. Mm-hmm. So you can get a bit better protein uptake. You have supplementary feed for the cows. You're monitoring the cows and culling out those cows that become less productive. You know, this becomes an incredibly intense treadmill. Not necessarily that farmers want to be on that treadmill, but what's the choice? And I think many of us in our lives recognize that treadmill. The treadmill in sheep is a little bit different in that how many can you put onto the piece of land? And then, you know, there's, we understand there can be patterns in trading sheep. So there's money to be made in maybe moving and trading sheep between farmers and moving them around the country. So that's how you make money. So this is, I think, the intersection, isn't it, between encouraging people to do something that's great for the environment and realising that they have to make a living. And the space in which they're making that living is you know, really tightly circumscribed. So that's where I think there's something to be sort of talked about, about how do we give farmers that space to do what they probably want to do mm-hmm. if we could, you know, if we could have that conversation. I think what we've mentioned previously is that there is a real desk disconnect between the farming yeah. community and the non-farming community mm-hmm. in yeah, terms of, I think we all talk about how we're, you know, we are quite disconnected from where our food comes from, especially like in more urban areas, everything comes from the supermarket. and that sort of adds to this um, sort of tension, I think, in terms of the farming community, feeling that they're under a lot of pressure and under a lot of attack from the public in relation to climate, biodiversity and so forth. But also the fact that the public don't necessarily, sorry, the non-farming community, of which I would be one, um, don't necessarily understand the day-to-day pressures that they're under and the sort of the way that their lives um, are sculpted and are affected by stresses like, you know, extreme weather, um, you know, like we've seen with significant storms in recent years. Mm-hmm. 
and as you alluded to with dairying, the sort of, you know the sort of the daily grind of the <coughs> getting up to do the milking and so Absolutely. forth. Absolutely, and also I mean in a sense that's back to that social isolation, isn't it? You know, we yeah. could argue that most of us are actually to a lesser or greater degree socially isolated, but if you if you have to get up in the wee small hours of the morning to do your work, and by lunchtime you've already done most people's working day, mm -hmm. when are you going to meet? When are you going to meet other people? How are you going to, and how are other people going to meet you? You know, and I, and I think that's a really important thing when food is only mediated through what we see on the shelves. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we do think, see things like, you know, farm open days, people trying to get people onto the farm, but that has to be arranged for mm -hmm. obvious reasons. So I think there's something there. And there's also something that, about the stories that we tell each other about these behaviours, you know, mm -hmm. back to, you know, simplistic stories where, you know, farmers are bad, environmentalists are good, mm -hmm. you know, it's all cows are bad and this other product is good, you know, simple narratives that are very polarising, very mm -hmm. exclusionary, without people really realising the work that that narrative is doing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, I, I agree. I think it's, it's such a difficult position for farmers to find themselves in because they're, they're literally between a rock and a hard place where they have next to no funds, very, very limited time, um, and all this pressure of trying to change things that have been done for generations. Because mm -hmm. that's the other thing as well, um, when we start to talk about family, a lot of these instances, it's legacy. You know, these are places that perhaps were fairly hostile 50 years ago, and their grandparents or late parents or, or whatever had spent most of their life getting the land to the state and mm -hmm. standard it is now. And in many parts of the UK, you know, areas of outstanding natural beauty, national parks, these are areas that are famed for the beauty of the farmland, now being told that that farmland is actually not suitable or good enough or delivering what we now want it to deliver as the public. Mm. Yeah, at the same time, we still expect the food to come from somewhere. And then there's also that trade-off then of where does the food come from? Are we going to import more? If so, where on earth are we importing it from? Because it could be far worse than what we're doing here in the UK where we have you know, okay regulations in terms of things. Um, and I think that's an incredibly difficult position for anyone to be in. I used to, I worked on a farm for about six months in the New Forest and it's an incredibly lonely experience. I mean, I love talking, partly while we set the podcast up, but um, you know, it's incredibly difficult because once you finished your, your sort of day job, and the New Forest isn't particularly far from anywhere, but mm. we were kind of in the middle of nowhere in the New Forest. So actually, to actually get anywhere took ages. There was only really one pub in the village that you had to walk through loads of dark woodland, uh, where you, you know, really dark to, to try and get to the pub. And you get there and there might be one other person. And you think, oh, okay, um, you know, is this really what I want to be doing with my time? Um, and for me, I thought, actually, it's not something that I could really wasn't the lifestyle that I wanted and mm. I'm quite an outdoorsy mm. environmentally focused person and the same when I did forestry you know forestry is very difficult you know you're alone in the woods for the majority of your time and you're exhausted when you come home so you go to bed so even though you know you might finish a bit early because it's dark actually your social life is totally different because of the um, you know physicality of the of the job as well so these are all things that really play a major part in in farmers and and, and anyone that works on the land really, where I think a lot of the time they think, actually, do you know what? This is how we've always done it. I'm gonna keep my head down and carry on. And you can end up with it and you can completely understand how some people come to that sort of 
conclusion mm. or, or position where they just think, oh, well, actually, do you know what? No matter what I do, it's going to be wrong. Because mm -hmm. that's the other reality. It could change. It will change again in three years when we have a global famine or, or, or whatever, you know? Yeah. And then, it'll, then they'll be on the chopping block again yeah. um, for that. So, you know, you can completely understand a bit of animosity from their side. And I think that maybe that intergenerational part is also something for all of us to think about. I mean, I guess, um, being the older person in this discussion, I'm in that sort of position now of thinking that a lot of the environmental damage, a lot of the uh, depletion of nature that's gone on in the last 30 years has happened while I've been watching. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been saying, let's not do this. But surely there must be an alternative, yada, yada. But it still happened. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's on, it's on me. It's on my watch. So, you know, when my grandchildren say to me, you know, what did you do? I say, well, you know, I did a lot of complaining and I tried mm -hmm. to make it a lot different, but actually I failed, mm -hmm. you know. And for all of us, I think we have to address some of those legacies, you know, we, with all of our family, with all of our parents to say, yeah, okay, that was okay at the time. You didn't understand any different or, you know, but now we know different and there's some costs to that. There's some sort of implications, aren't there, about, you know, maybe our parents will do things that we won't get to do, you know. So maybe yeah. our parents zipped around the world on jets and that's not what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. Equally, you know, maybe our parents saw, I don't know, you know, birds and animals in, in the environment that we've yet to see. Maybe our legacy will be, you know, that we leave a countryside that's richer and nature that's recovering. You know, our children and grandchildren will get to see plants, animals, that we've, we've yet to see in our environment. But I think that, you know, we tend to focus on farmers as a kind of representative. And if we're not careful, they could be a cipher for all of us. You know, we've all got those tensions. And it is quite hard, isn't it, to go home and say, do you know what, mum and dad, you got that wrong. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, not in, a, not in a minor way, but mm. in a, you know, quite big way. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I think in farms you see that, but it's something that we're all we're all involved in. Yeah, I think it's something that's fairly easy to see in your own families, you know, when you talk to your own grandparents and you see what they do or still do and you think, oh, you really shouldn't be doing that. But, um, but actually they're sort of going, well, why? Mm. We're fine, we've always done it. Mm. And I think it's also that case of in like one or two instances, it's not necessarily noticeable, but the cumulative impact is enormous. Um, and that's one of, the, one of the big challenges. I think, um, one thing to just touch on then is, is talking about how livestock can be beneficial. So we've talked about, obviously, we can look at more like regenerative practices, but what role do they actually play in terms of having more sustainable farming? Is there a place for livestock there? Yeah, so if you look at um, sort of agroecological approaches, a lot of these will involve livestock as part of rotations mm -hmm. because of them instead of applying fertilizer if you've got the livestock then they're directly pooing on the ground and returning nutrients into the soil that's the sort of a, you know the way it was done before we had all of these technologies and so mm -hmm. forth um there's also sort of um i guess the more ecological aspects in terms of just the way that um animals or heavier animals like place their feet on the ground and the sort of little mini habitats that that generates in terms of small ponds. There's the um, sort of dung beetles that you find in cow pads mm -hmm. and so forth if you're not using a lot of wormers and things like that. 
Um, and all of this generates insect life that then feeds birds and then feeds large predators and so forth. So they are part of an ecosystem when they're within their sort of ecological niche. Obviously, if you've got vast sways of cattle and not very much else, that's not great, is it? Mm. Um, but it's about the balance rather than being about one thing is specifically good or specifically bad. And I think I, what I wanted to touch on that we sort of said before, we'd mentioned about factory farming. We do have factory farming in the UK mm. if we look at chickens. Mm. Um, and obviously the definition of a factory farm can sometimes be a little bit hazy. Um, but it, that relates to what we were saying about deforestation. A lot of um, soy grown in these deforested regions is for animal feed. A lot of that goes to poultry. Um, so I don't want to only talk about ruminants as if they're sort of the... Um, yeah. The main issue here, like there's a lot of other things that come into mm -hmm. this and a lot of people, you know, will avoid eating eating chicken that's not free range and so forth because of the problems it causes in terms of water pollution, um, in terms of um, animal welfare and all those other issues. So yeah, I just wanted to highlight that as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know turkeys can be quite a big issue as well, like a lot of the, the, the poultry side of things. Um, and it, I think as well, I was reading the other day that something crazy like there's more, the biomass of chickens is more than every other bird on the planet combined. Oh, yeah. Or something. And you just think, to even get your head around that is just absolutely crazy. And, and I think that that's sort of, in a sense, part of what we're touching upon is that things like the intensive poultry units, they've become divorced from any way mm. of kind of taking back in those nutrients, taking back in that mm. manure they've become divorced from those systems. Now, I've been to farms which have include intensive poultry units and they've tried to work on ways of taking the manure, putting it back on the land, all mm. of those questions. So it's not that people aren't trying, but I think that you know animals do have a central role in many farming systems, partly because as Pippa's described, you know, they're eating the things, digesting them, all of that manure is really important and the process of grazing can be really important. But mm. those fields need to be the fields that we kind of imagine mm. rather than the fields that actually are. Yeah. So if, you know, if the field's been ploughed up and it's just a monoculture of some highly bred ryegrass, then all of, them, all of the kind of trampling that Pippa's been describing and grazing isn't going to rejuvenate that into the hay meadow mm -hmm. of our imaginations. You know, these things need to be joined up. So I think there's an appropriate role for animals and also how many animals. Mm. And I think that's the other bit that, mm. you know, it's just the sheer quantity of animals that people are raising that also is causing a problem. And that's, again, back to some of our demands mm. about how much meat we want to eat. You know, we sometimes polarise into absolutely no meat or, you know, a kind of paleo diet of nothing but meat, you know, our grandparents ate a lot less meat. Mm. That's that's just it. They must, you know, they must have done. Well, yeah, it was meat on Sunday, wasn't it? Yeah, and then you and then you stretched it out, mm. and also they ate things that we wouldn't want to eat. You know, we're very squeamish now about, you know, um, innards, you mm. know, organs, all of that sort of stuff. That was, you know, if you talk, if you're fortunate enough to have your grandparents or your great grandparents. Those were often their absolute treat, you know, oh, a lovely bit of liver or something. And we're very squeamish about that now. So it's about eating a whole animal. It's about eating less. The number of animals that have been kept. And there's also something about 
um, agriculture, that it is a culture mm-hmm. as well. And that's again back to we live in a landscape, we live in a culture that animals have been an intimate part of, which is not an excuse for confining them in chicken sheds and exploiting them or you know running as many cattle as you possibly can. But it is an argument that actually we would like you know, animals in our landscape. We would like people with the skills and relationship with those animals. It's the quality and texture of that relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, historically, animals were also a motive force on the farm. Mm-hmm. You know, so my great uncle could run a team of six horses, you know, which is a skill now incredibly rare. But when he did it, it was pretty common, mm-hmm. you know. So we've lost that and we've lost horses that used to be part of every farm, really. Yeah. And we've not seen, and that's also where we need to be careful with words like tradition, I think, because we've seen a huge amount of cultural and technological change, and people are sometimes a bit reluctant to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, oh, this is the way I did it. No, it's not the way you did it. You know, incrementally, you did lots of little changes that changed all of what, what happened. So I think that, you know, we need to be respectful of, you know, those complications of family relationships, but not be too kind of bound up by the idea yeah. that we're repeating the tradition. So again, it's back to Pippa's point about balance. You know, how do we find our way through this, particularly when we have narratives that are kind of very binary, either this or that, and then we polarise to each other. You know, mm. you're in one camp or you're in the other camp. Being in that middle space, we're trying to say to people, oh, let's have a conversation, let's have a dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you think that? Why do I think that? How can we meet in the middle? That space of dialogue, really hard to be in because you don't get any bonus points for being in it. You're not, not going to, yeah. you know, with the best will in the world. When you see, say, you know, what's repeat, reported in the media very often, if you take a very strong controversial line, you're on. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're booked. Absolutely. If you kind of go, well, you know, it's quite complicated, yeah. then, you know, No, no get one's off. interested. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's very, very frustrating. I mean, I think, I think it's where other professions come in to sort of help build the argument and the discussion. So, for example, on, on nutrition, I, I think nutritionists have to be much more vocal in terms of getting involved in the debate because perhaps I'm wrong, but the more I look at, the more I, in terms of sort of extreme meat-eating or mm. extreme veganism or whichever, I always read, whatever evidence I seem to read, I just seem to end up going, so a healthy, balanced diet, like seems to be the way we should go. Um, and actually that means having a limited amount of meat in your in your diet. You know, We know that too much of anything is bad for you, um, and red meat especially, but it can also be incredibly good for you if it's raised properly. I know there's a lot of evidence to show that um, beef that's um, raised more organically and everything else has actually more nutrients and vitamins available in it, um, which goes back to the importance of you know, making sure things are done more sort of sustainably and mm. effectively for, for health on that front too. I think there's that um, quote, is it Michael Pollan, the quote that's like, yeah. eat not too much, mostly plants. Mm-hmm. And that's that sums it up really, yeah. like as to what you've realised, a lot of it boils back down to this, you know, variety, mm-hmm. focusing more on plants, but like meat can play a role. And I just wanted to pick up on what you said um, before, Matt, about um, in terms of, demand and the way that we're now um you know squeamish about certain things and so forth i think sometimes we um position it as if consumers are sort of sitting there like baby birds with their mouth open saying 
we want this, we want meat, we want hamburgers. But like those, um, that situation has been mediated through food companies and through mm. fast food companies and through this sort of advertising, using behavioral science and manufacturing demand. And that's why we've arrived at this point where we have, you know, things like big poultry factory farms and so forth, because it's about what is the most efficient and efficient in economic terms. How can I derive the most profit um, by reducing inputs right down, but also making sure that demand is there? So I don't think it's a case of it all being necessarily on the consumers to, um, you know, have this all figured out, because I think there's a lot of like powerful organizations using like very clever marketing and also um, like financial power to sort of keep the system as it is and to drive what is profitable rather mm -hmm. than what is necessarily beneficial in environmental or health spheres. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's absolutely right. I think, I don't think any of the environmental stuff can fall solely on um, consumers. It has to be sort of a concerted effort. I mean, obviously, consumers have a huge role to play in helping shift markets, but so do governments or regulators or, or anything else, um, and the farmers themselves. I mean, I don't know if you've watched, been watching Clarkson's Farm. I've watched a bit, yeah. yeah I've just been, I haven't finished the second season yet, but I'm watching the second season at the moment. And that's such a good, is such a good advocate for it, showing the reality of the challenges. And I mean, when you see some of the farmers on there and how much they're struggling and how much time they put in, there's one poor lady who, who works in dairy actually, who sort of admitted that her and husband don't even have a salary because if they had a salary, it would bankrupt the business. And you sort of sit there thinking, well, how on earth has this come to be? You know, there has to be, someone has to take responsibility for this. And, it, and it's not the consumer's fault. We're buying what is, offered to us and people are going to want to spend less, aren't they? Because, you know, especially now, not everyone can afford these things. So actually there has to be a discussion around like the real cost of our food and who's bearing that cost. Because if the government's subsidizing it, they need to subsidize it to a degree that makes it sustainable for the farmer. And exactly the same if it's a supermarket selling it to consumers. So there has to be sort of a rebalancing of it, but then that becomes complicated as well in the context of global trade deals or whatever else it may be. So it's a very fine balancing act, but it's why there needs to kind of be that understanding around sort of the whole problem of actually, yes, eat less meat. We can eat less meat, but it's much higher quality, much more environmentally sound um, and, and, and approach it that way. And most people I know who are a bit older, they tend to come from a bit more of that background. They remember that because actually when they were kids, they, they didn't have it. Um, I mean, even me, I remember as a kid, we didn't have meat all the time. But but I think that there's <clears throat> there's so much here to unpack, isn't there? Because mm. I agree with Pippa, this idea of the sort of very passive consumer, yeah. you know, like some monster going, feed me, you know, feed <laughs> me now, um, is partly a construction. You know, we, we're yeah. constructed in that. Um, I always think that, you know, there are a few simple things that we could do, relatively simple things. Just chop down the marketing and advertising, mm. which is so dominated by the fast food companies. Um, I think I get every two or three days a pizza company drop a leaflet through our door. I've never bought one of their pizzas. And you know, it won't be any news to them that I am never going to buy one of their pizzas. But their financial muscle is such that they just keep dropping those leaflets. Mm -hmm. Now I can see the people on scooters arriving to my neighbors who are clearly purchasing those pizzas, you know, stop the advertising. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that's a huge part of it. And we know that advertising works. We know that advertising works because advertisements continue and people don't spend this money if it's not effective. And in other areas of life, we have things that we don't advertise, which in other countries, they do advertise. But, you know, we don't have advertising for tobacco. Mm -hmm. I certainly grew up in a time when there was advertising for tobacco and they were amongst the most entertaining and memorable advertisements. You know, stop it. Mm -hmm. You know, take them off. Mm -hmm. Just take them off. And then, you know, we could, that would actually start to restrict what that kind of offer is. And then also the role of the consumer as a passive recipient of whatever's sold to us is something that we need to talk about more. That what are we actually being sold? And why are we being sold that? And that kind of conversation, I think, is a dialogue that we could have more between each other. I'm always impressed with um, the, the constant sort of promotion of different foods, you know, as a, the next thing, the next thing. They've always got to be promoting novelty. Mm-hmm. And that's back to Michael Pollan's kind of, you know, actually, it's quite boring, mm-hmm. quite simple. You know, we're actually just talking about vegetables, a little bit of meat, you know, something that you would recognize. Whereas if I go into the supermarket, I've got, you know, 200, what's it, 250 types of yogurt, um, you know, 22 types of milk. I've got, you know, the world's larder laid before me. Now, one of the things the psychologists will tell you in a complex, rather stressed environment, if you have a lot of choices to make, you make bad choices. Mm-hmm. Now, don't tell me that the retailers don't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these are environments that are controlled, environments that are thought through, not necessarily in our best interests. So I think there's you know, a number of things we can do to start rolling, rolling that back, which isn't about blaming people. You know, we get into narratives that people make bad choices because they're stupid mm-hmm. or they make bad choices because they're morally weak-willed or mm-hmm. whatever it is, or lazy. Or Actually, you know, let's look at why they've made those choices. And very often they are addressing very rationally problems mm-hmm. that they've been given mm-hmm. rather than problems they've created, you know. so And I always feel uncomfortable in this, in talking about sort of food choices, because predominantly food choices are still made in families by women, mm. you know, so it's, it's great for a man to sort of roll up and start pontificating about, you know, what, what other people should do. But at the same time, you know, when we look at the burdens of um, what do you have to do around your household, how do you have to maintain your household, that still largely falls on women who are making then the food choices. So yes, when we say people are time rich or time poor, who is time rich and who is time poor? There's a gendered element to that. And then there's also a kind of class element to that. You know, that if, you, if you're struggling to make ends meet, as we were just saying, you know, we live in a society that's cruelly um, divided between the haves and the have-nots. You know, if you're trying to make your daily or weekly meal from whatever you've got from the food bank, that's a very different thing from charting your course through, you know, an upmarket supermarket or your farmer's market or something like that. So, you know, we have to take into all of those things. But I think we can address that. We can do things about that. But it's moving away from that sort of passivity. Mm. And I think yeah. framing things in terms of 
food environments is a very helpful concept because it's how you know how the environment interacts with our sort of agency in these things and there's been some interesting work done around how that relates to what children eat and especially women who are mm. time pressed um having to typically women having to cope with the demands of raising a toddler who's like I've just seen that advertised so I want to eat that I'm sure you'll start to be aware of yeah, this with your yeah. with your child and uh, how you deal with that in terms of the financial side of things thinking about the health side of things and also the pressure of getting your child home on the bus without it screaming mm. you know um, yeah that was uh, that was my point no, <laughs> no, I, something I, I, else I, I wanted to say but I'll remember it in a moment no I think I think it's completely valid because um, I was actually having this conversation the other day with the wife because we were sort of saying well my wife comes from a, um, a very, very small village in Belarus where they literally had nothing. You know, they had a village shop less than six months of the year. That's how like, remote it is. Mm-hmm. It's minus 40 in the winter, plus 30 in the summer. Quite, they, they had to take one person from the village every day. It changed every day. Had to take the whole village's cows out to the fields wow. and watch them all day. You know, that kind of thing. And that's in Central Europe, you know, mm-hmm. not that long ago. Still a bit like that now. Um, so she comes from a background of very much like living off the land and like having, she didn't know what organic was when she came to the UK. She was going, why is this, what is organic? I don't know what it means. And she was like, isn't all food made like that? And we were mm. like, no. <laughs> but, but they couldn't afford fertilizers, they couldn't afford pesticides or anything. So they had to produce stuff using like whatever they had available to them at the time. Mm-hmm. So for her, it was always very strange. And she finds it very, very strange that we eat kind of this like ultra processed food. Um, we have this kind of, mentality of you know come i mean not everybody but coming in and watching tv and sticking something in the oven quickly um she doesn't really understand that necessarily um but at the same time when you start now we've got a child that's nearly two when we get home from work the last thing you want to do is spend an hour or two hours even wrestling a child and trying to make dinner Mm -hmm. um from scratch so when you start seeing it in that context, you start going, okay, I see. <laughs> I see what everyone's doing here. And it makes a lot, an awful lot of sense to do that. But at the same time, there is then that challenge of actually, do, is your child getting the right nutrition or, mm-hmm. or whatever else? So it is a very difficult environment for people, which is why I think also, sorry, I'll continue to say, sorry, it, it, it's also very challenging for people and how our culture needs to shift. Mm-hmm. Because actually now, I've always been lucky because when I set my company up, I, I always work from home. Um, my wife has been working from home largely since COVID, but now she's starting to go back to the office. And, and the additional stresses of having to go back to the office, just that little bit of time you lose at the end of either end of the day, having to prepare your lunch to take with you, all of those little things really eat into that small amount of time you actually have to be able to look after sort of the family at home. So there's also kind of these wider sort of societal impacts and things we kind of have to consider in this context of going, okay, how do we help enable people more time and the lifestyle to be able to sort of actually do some of these things? Mm-hmm. I, was, I remembered what I was going to say, which was mm-hmm. about um, my advertising to children, mm-hmm. so like, and especially digital marketing, and how that's just, you know, I did a little bit of work on this when I was um, based at um, WHO European Office for Non-Communicable Diseases, and they were really looking at this area because it's a bit of a wild west and mm-hmm. like how you how you regulate it, how you even measure it is really challenging. Um, and when you've got children who, you know, they have devices now that and a lot of that 
isn't necessarily regulated or the parent doesn't necessarily understand what they're looking at, mm-hmm. then it can be, you know, they can be getting adverts for unhealthy food products or foods high in um, salt, sugar and fat and so mm-hmm. forth, uh, other things. So it's another challenge that we have to deal with and it's um, it sort of compounds these issues and it links back to, I think, what you were <clears> saying about being really time poor and, you, mm-hmm. you know, you want to spend time with your child rather than always be like cooking for them um in terms of um things like shared parental leave or mm-hmm. come into this aspect of the food yeah, environment absolutely. right it's all connected and it's i think you've this theme of like inequality whether that's mm. in terms of gender but also in terms of like um economics mm-hmm. that sort of um mediates this and shapes the landscape as well yeah absolutely but i, I think there are interventions that can be made and have been made in the past and I guess that you know this is where I as a sort of baby of social democracy um, when I was at junior school we everybody all ate at tables from you know the the menu that was at the school dinner that was it and then I remember in the early 80s it all being privatized so we went from a, a group of ladies who were kind of doing British classics of you know, uh, cottage pie, mm-hmm. and then some custard and crumble afterwards to would you like burger and chips? Mm-hmm. You know, that was part of my kind of school journey. And then, you know, I've been fortunate enough as a chair of governors in, at a primary school to be involved in reinstituting the kitchen mm-hmm. so the children can eat at lunchtime, which again takes enormous amounts of pressure off parents. Mm-hmm. You know, and it sounds like a very simple thing, but then because you come home, you know that your child has already had one meal mm-hmm. that day, one decent thought-through meal, also under supervision to make sure that they've actually you know, eaten it rather than thrown it on the floor by accident or all of those other things. So then the pressure's off. If you want to cook with your child, you can cook. If, if it's too difficult, then you can prepare them a little snack knowing that they've, they've eaten that day. So something like universal school dinners for children would take a lot of pressure off this and also take a lot of pressure off this kind of snacking and and cut away, I think, a lot of this market because that's part of what they're doing. Is it easy? No. Is it in terms of the global challenges that we're talking about that complex? No. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. and you've got those children there. And I think that you know, when it comes to teenagers, it would probably be more complicated. But again, we could do that. We could reinstitute works canteens yeah. that, again, were a thing that existed. Now, I know when we're working from home, that's not so straightforward. But again, that could happen. You know, if you're a big employer, where's the tax break for a canteen? You know, serious tax breaks for a canteen. Mm-hmm. You know, do you give your folks subsidised food? Wow, that's an interesting thing. And then if you do want them to come to the office, well, maybe that's where it's going to come to come to the office for, yeah. isn't it? You know, Absolutely, that's, yeah. I would. Anything yeah. free, I'd be there. Yeah. yeah. And then I think the food writer, Joanna Blythman, also points out that, you know, we need to be careful about what we're talking about in sort of the pre-processed food. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to somewhere um, like Italy, which has sort of a different culture away from supermarket, often if you go to the market, there'll be vegetables that are slightly pre-prepared. Mm-hmm. You know, so they'll have a bucket of artichokes that are ready for you to take home and cook. You know, they'll, they'll have done a little bit of pre-prep. And then equally, 
you know, why, what's wrong with going to a local corner shop where they've pre-prepared something for you, a pizza or a simple meal, but made in that delicatessen. Yeah. Because when we move to that factory, that's when it sort of changes. And that's also when we start to see that chain of exploitation. So like you're describing, you know, farmers who are barely making a living, people in the supply chain who are barely making a living, you know, working in vast factories, creating this ultra-processed food that then is shipped along mm-hmm. to people who are equally in difficult positions. Yeah. You know, and it's intervening to break break those chains, I think, is something that we need to work on. Yeah, absolutely. And it also creates a bigger disconnect between where the food comes from. Because um, to go back to um, sort of my home life um, for a moment, one of the things we've been eating a lot lately is venison. Um, and I'm quite lucky because some of my friends shoot I shoot sometimes, so you know we can go and get things quite easily. But the other day they said, "Oh, actually, you've actually got to buy something now." And I went, "Oh, okay, God, I hate buying things." So, but I, I realised that the price of venison is something like seventy pound, um, seventy p a kilo, which is it, like the cheapest meat you can get. So, um, and I think you can buy a whole deer for you know you, mm. you buy the carcass mm. mostly prepared, as mm. you say, not completely prepared. Still got to do a bit of skinning and things, but you know mostly prepared. Um, but it was something like forty pounds for an entire deer, and you think, and that's so much food when you actually look at it. Mm-hmm. And and going back to the canteen side of things, well, sorry, that was just to make a point that actually that disconnect has led us to buying potentially more expensive, lower quality products, and um, when actually there's a lot of opportunity out there. And in the UK, the deer population is three times higher than it should be, which is having a very big impact on biodiversity mm-hmm. and farming and the costs of everything. So great solution there, eat the deer. Um, but also when it comes to sort of company policy and things, I used to sit on, sit on a few boards um, advising companies on sort of strategy or um, climate or whatever it may be. And one of the suggestions I had to, to one of them when they were talking about their climate footprint, I was saying, well, do you want to make all of your events vegan? Do you carry on as you are? Because they were talking about what actions they take now and what they sort of do a go and do a huge report on. And I said, well, why don't you just implement a food policy you have huge events hundreds of people you organize you hire caterers all the time um you know you're a fairly decent sized organization why don't you make all of your events um sort of vegan or vegetarian and you opt in for meat potentially as one option or you have a limited number of meat dishes um, that reflecting how much meat proportion we should eat and you make a sort of a talk about it or my preferred option is you still offer meat but you make a big conversation about where that meat has come from. Maybe you have to pay slightly more for it. And actually you say this meat is sourced from only regenerative farming or whatever. So you're actually helping build that economy and that transition and the education towards the type of farming that we want to see. And this was an environmental organization involved in the landscape. So I was sort of saying to them, look, you know, you should be at every step of what you're doing, promoting sustainable landscapes. And a sustainable landscape is one that involves people in farming. So you as an organization should have this as part of your narrative and strategy. And that's part of your climate policy. Um, you know, it's going beyond just saying, no, we're vegan. Actually, you're supporting the transition to a more sustainable system. Mm-hmm. So there's things like that, that need to happen as well and if you've got canteens it's exactly the angle it should be taken from you know we're not going to say no meat people still want meat they're still going to get meat but actually let's have less of it or meat that's a much is a bit more expensive that's of much much higher quality and supports the, the practices that we want to see 
Mm. Yeah. But and I think that gets a, um, this idea of sort of um, integration. So um, I've just absolutely lost my thread, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I, um, we can come back to ahead. it. Yeah. I, I was just going to say on that point, I don't know if we want to talk a little bit about sort of um, ultra-processed food at, versus sort of organic food. Because um, we haven't really talked too much about organics, but mm -hmm. we're talking an awful lot about food. Um, so I thought maybe we should, maybe if we could talk a little bit about ultra processed food um, and see to explain a bit about why it's such a problem um, for health um, and also the planet. And then we can talk a bit about sort of alternatives mm. um, to that, such as organic food and perhaps why that's important. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you want to talk from that sort of public health perspective about how? That, ultra-processed food links in with obesity, would that be a...? Yeah, so definitely not my area of expertise per se. Mm -hmm. Ultra-processed food is a sort of contested definition. Mm -hmm. It gets a bit messy. So if you've got um, grain, for example, if you've got wheat, that would be an unprocessed food. Flour, it's been processed. And then when you put that into a cookie and you add things like sugar, um, fat, emulsifiers, all these ingredients that don't really sound like food, mm -hmm. that's when we start typically think a bit about it as being ultra-processed. And there's different sort of categorization systems, um, but I think there's still a bit of sort of contestation in the scientific community around how we actually apply that and how mm -hmm. that makes sense in terms of advice to people and whether it is um, linked to BMI. I think what we broadly see is that when there's a higher proportion of ultra-processed foods in one's diet, that tends to be associated with things like a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease, higher incidence of things like obesity. Um, and the ultra-processed foods we know interact with our um, sort of brain chemistry, I suppose, where we've evolved to live in a sort of um, food-scare setting. So we've evolved to seek out... Um, sugar and salt and fat so we can get the nutrition that we need so those things are delicious um, and lovely for us to eat now we're presented with an abundance of those things and it's sort of um, messed up that system because it now means that we sort of over consume them and that's what um, Henry Dimbleby talked about in the national food strategy as being um, the junk food cycle mm -hmm. um, and this sort of negative feedback loop and the fact that these products that are more um, ultra-processed tend to be very profitable for companies to create. So because they create them and they, as we talked about earlier, are sometimes creating demand for them, we buy them, we eat them, they're delicious, we want to eat more and it sort of creates this negative feedback loop within our mm -hmm. food system. Um, so that's a kind of general overview. I don't want to get into the sort of the different debates around um, specific nutrients and how those mm -hmm. relate to certain diseases, but yeah, that's fine. That's, no, that's a that's a really good overview just to mm. understand actually what it is, because uh, because again, you know, people see these things in, in different ways, as you say. So I think as a broad term, uh, that's really clear. So, and I, and I think it's also one of those things that definitionally it can be quite difficult, mm -hmm. you know, if we want as a, but I think as a, as a broad rule of thumb, we know what it is when we see it. So like you say, when it starts to include uh, ingredients that really you don't, you don't recognise as food, mm -hmm. then you're starting to be in that zone, aren't you? That actually this is something that's more complex, 
something that's been manufactured, something that's intended to have a very long shelf life, mm. you know, because that's part of it. And then also something that's usually heavily promoted mm. as well. Those two things go together. And, you know, I have a lot of confidence that actually a lot of people know what they, they, they see in that. It's about how do we give them that capacity to, to make better decisions, to uh, remove those things that stop them from making those decisions and also corral them into places where they're making, you know, those seem to be the best options. And yeah, I think definitions are really difficult, but I think people get what, what we're talking about. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think people are sort of starting to wise up to it as the mm. amount of sort of health conditions are sort of increasing. I know an awful lot of people have said to me lately that the amount of people that they seem to know getting cancer seems to be just, mm. I don't know if it's because we're getting older, but it just seems to be drastically increasing and affecting more and more young people. And you start thinking, well, what is it? Because yeah, a lot of our grandparents and stuff didn't have the food that we yeah. were eating. What is the impact of that? And I think it's a lot easier to see that sort of correlation, even amongst people you know, because you know people that eat a lot more of it than others. And you can quite often see the impact of, of some of that, you know, or at least in their, their sort of health issues start coming up. So I think it is, it's kind of also, people are starting to wise up to it and it's becoming almost observable, like the impact it's having on our, on our health quite clearly. Whereas before, I don't think it was such a known thing, you know? Well, I, I think, if, you know, if we view it as a novelty that was introduced into our mm. lives in the 1980s, you know, the kind of cook, chill, food, food that had a long life that you can microwave, all of those things, you know, it appears in the 1980s around the time that, you know, obesity starts to take off. And I think Pippa's point about, you know, being absolutely able to nail these things down can be very difficult mm -hmm. because, you know, absolute causation in human biology is really hard. Mm -hmm. um, I remember a few years ago, I took part in a project we were looking at nutrigenetic testing, which is what genetically you should eat, because it does vary between different people. Um, these tests were not legal in the UK, but they were not illegal. Mm. They existed in this interesting gray zone. So I took these nutrigenetic tests. I was under clinical supervision, so I wasn't just like a guinea pig. I was being <laughs> properly looked after. But the broad things that it came out with was like, you know, eat green veg, mm -hmm. don't smoke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you know yeah. a part of you sort of, wow, you know, we yeah. did a genetic test to get to that. Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, it was another way of affirming through another form of science mm -hmm. that, you know, this is where we should go. So in a sense, yes, it affirmed a common, a common sense kind of idea. But at the same time, I think, that shows the difficulty of this sort of perfect attribution to something about, you know, we're not going to be able to have the smoking scientific gun very often, that it's this that directly relates to that. Mm. It's more an epidemiological approach of, if we look at all of these factors together, this is what we're seeing is happening. Mm. And, mm. I th and I think that that's sort of, so we need to be careful not to be sort of sucked into that kind of terrain of perfection. That there won't be a sort of perfect diet, there won't be a perfect farming, yeah. there won't be, you know, what we're talking about is something that is substantially better for, than where we are currently, mm -hmm. that we have evidence to speak to 
why it's better, mm. you know, but we're not going to be resolving that absolutely, but we're going to be in a consensus position that those are reasonable ways of advancing. And I think that part of the polarisation has been, you know, demands for absolute proof in a world mm. where absolute proof isn't really available. Yeah. And, and I think that sometimes, that, certainly that sort of, as a social scientist, I'm very used to that, I'm very comfortable with that. Whereas when I talk to colleagues in other sciences, they're much more concerned about, you know, numerical absolute kind of certainties that are just not really available. So mm. it's about having those discussions, I think, again. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. I was just going to say, I think, I think as well on that point, it's due to the, I think in the UK as well, it's just especially challenging in terms of agriculture because we have such a mosaic of landscapes and habitats and all of these things across the UK that actually it makes it very difficult to have kind of a one-size-fits-all approach whereas some other countries are a bit more sort of consistent in terms of like the topologies mm -hmm. so it, we, it kind of makes things a bit more difficult here but the the argument doesn't really seem to change it's still the same sort of discussion yet the context is much much more complicated than i think people people realize um you know because to a lot of people it's still just a field you know where you, you either grow something in it or yeah. you put a cow in it or whatever you know um but sorry to, to your point no i was well I'll Jumping off of that, I was going to say that's why I think we're looking more now at this way how we decentralize the net zero agenda, mm -hmm. especially for food and farming. Like, rather than it being this sort of top down thing, it's how can we localize it to a specific area, a specific community, or a specific valley, even, mm -hmm. um, and look at what solutions work there that might not work in other places. And that's something that has to be done with people that know the land. Um, so that's what we were trying to do with the project that we um, undertook last year, which was looking at these sort of more deliberative processes, so inspired by like climate assemblies and so forth, where you're bringing people together to have these types of dialogues, where you're trying to have a certain norms around respectful conversations and not going off into our sort of um, polarised camps and so forth. Mm. Um, and what we did was we applied this approach um, used the climathon methodology, which is a bit like a hackathon, so getting mm -hmm. people together for a short length of time to work in teams to quite intensively come up with solutions um, for their local area. And that's normally done in cities. It's a very sort of urban-oriented approach. And we tried to redesign it to apply it in a rural setting, which worked very well in some ways. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of really engaged people. It like help to reinforce networks between people who were working together but perhaps with different agendas or perhaps you know through the pandemic had only met over zoom for example um, and we did it on a farm so that was really useful like getting people out onto the land to see what this farmer was doing in their area what the real challenge was was engaging farmers in the process we only had a couple of farmers who were able to join us mm -hmm. and you know everyone there was involved in somewhat in farming in some way or was a smallholder or something like that and they were like oh, can we, we just need more farmers in the room but that's so difficult because taking the time away from the business is just not feasible yeah. and the way that we were the project cycle ran in terms from the funder it fell during a really busy period of the farming calendar so it's about how we design these sort of things from the offset to make it most accessible to the people that we really want in the room um, so that we can learn from them, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. I think it's very difficult to 
to, to sometimes get to the point where you're having those conversations that you need to have. Because as you say, especially with farmers, you know, they can't leave because it's so intensive what they do. And again, Clarkson's Farm, watch it, because it's, it's a really good illustration of a mm -hmm. country farm isn't really particularly reflective, I don't think, necessarily of, of the realities of farming. Um, and I think it's, it's important to understand that, but one of the things I see and one of the biggest problems I see is we spend too much time sort of talking to ourselves. Like there's a, there's a lot of problems where we sort of have silos or I've been to many events. I remember once I went to a big event, there was 80 organizations about where we were discussing sort of the future of forests and tree planting and everything. And I remember I said, one of the, in the first meeting, I said, well, where are we gonna put all the trees? And they said, oh, well, we're gonna put, blah, blah, blah. and I said, well, there's not a single landowner. There's no like farmers, there's no estate representatives. You know, mm. it's great, but actually, what are we going to, how are we going to do it? Like, and that's what we should have been asking at the beginning, in my opinion. But anyway, you know, it, but I've, I've seen that happen quite a lot where you end up with, there's a lot of sort of like talking shops and, and areas for sort of thinking, but not necessarily the doing. And that's because the doing is incredibly difficult. You know, if it was easy, we probably would have done it already. Um, so which, which is why we have to now sort of try and think of new ways to approach it and where legislation and those kind of things come in. Mm. But also economics, you know, as, it's getting harder and harder to manage farms. Things like biodiversity net gain that's coming in, uh, the nutrient neutrality stuff that's coming in, um, well, they're already in. Um, Biodiversity's not, but it's coming this year. Um, so when those things arrive, that's gonna change the dynamic and opportunities for farmers to rethink parts of the farm. And I think that's gonna be really important for creating that inroads to then go, okay, this is what we can do here, but actually there's a lot more that could be done to help make it more sustainable. And I think it's, I think once something like that happens, it gives just a little bit of flex to sort of hopefully open up those conversations a lot more than perhaps they have happened mm -hmm. in the past. And, and I think that, that, you know, the climathons are really interesting as a way of trying to provoke and have a debate with people. Mm -hmm. And I'm not surprised that you don't get everybody because that's the kind of nature of it, isn't it? <laughs> but, um, people fail to prioritise those kind of discussions. And also we've lived through a time where we've had a lot of consultation. Mm -hmm. So we've been asked what we've thought. And, you know, I'm sure we're all plagued by consumer surveys of, you know, you just bought, I don't know, 10 tins of cat food. How was your experience? You know? mm -hmm. And so everybody's kind of battering us with those things. So it's differentiating that from what I think we probably need are more meaningful, deeper conversations mm -hmm. that are then tied to action. Yeah. And, and I think that that's maybe one of the, the bits that we need to think through. I mean, I've been enormously impressed by what we've seen in terms of citizens' assemblies and citizens' juries about, you know, difficult topics, difficult, mm -hmm. difficult topics, mm -hmm. which have been empowered to make, you know, societal change. I think are really important to think through because when you know when we talk about talking there's always this sense that we're just going to kick around an idea and then we'll go home and we've had a lovely exchange actually when we look at things like citizens assemblies empowered to make a difference they can shift lots of things they can empower people to make a lot of difference and i think that those are the sorts of areas that we need to be urgently thinking about because it is about tying policy to practical change on the ground. How do we do that? Well, we get the people in the room, but also we have a structured debate. And then maybe that can put some things 
properly to bed. So we're no longer going to discuss them. We've agreed on it. We're moving along. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the mechanisms that we need to start thinking about that will actually allow us to break through some of the complexity, but also some of the log jams that we've identified. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, I'll just pick up on, I think that's really important about these events being tied to a tangible route to change and that being sort of built in from the outset because, you know, you're asking for people's labour and it's like, how do you then, um, yeah, see that through, follow that through in terms of the outputs? But then I also think that no one event is going to change the world necessarily. Mm. And there's spaces for us to imagine different futures and to sort of... Um, set the boundaries of these issues together and imagine things together in a way that we can't really do in the same way on social media, on Twitter, for example, when we're very like entrenched and very like, oh, I can't talk to that person because they don't agree with me on that specific thing. But creating spaces for like productive deliberation, whether that ends in consensus or not, um, I think is very valuable in these mm -hmm. types of topics. But, I, but yes. I think I'm thinking that, you know, the other thing that these structured dialogues can help is to help inform different groups. So I remember back in the days when we were considering GM technology in this country, uh, I think Lancaster University held a citizens' assembly and the group of citizens were informed by the scientists, by the policy makers, all of these things. They really, really didn't like them. Mm -hmm. And they liked them less once they were informed about them, which for the scientists was just like a mind bomb. Mm -hmm. You know, oh my God, you know, they'd always assumed it was a deficit model, that people didn't understand it, which was why they didn't like it. Actually, when they did understand it, they liked it even less. <laughs> so, you know, so there's some learning for that mm -hmm. group of scientists, you know, go back, your assumptions are wrong. Mm. And then in the, you know, in Ireland where they had the debate and the Citizens' Assembly about abortion, which changed a hugely massive cultural change, part of what it gave the policymakers was the confidence to make changes. Mm. Mm. Because what they could see was this representative group of people who debated the issue, they weren't, so as policymakers, they weren't going to run off and then suddenly find that their constituency had deserted them. Mm -hmm. They could be confident in that. And so I think that there's something about using these appropriately. And then also the brief, the remit, similarly back in the days of the GM consultations, I had a sort of off the record briefing about some of the, some of the technologies that were being trialed. And, you know, the scientists and policymakers there said, you know, raise the question as to whether we should be growing that crop type at all, mm. let alone the genetically modified, because this was about animal feed. And as part of that, they saw how destructive growing this animal feed was in certain circumstances. So whether it was GM or not was a sort of uh, a curlicue upon what was actually quite a destructive practice, period. Mm. So I think those informed discussions, those sort of trials, help to build up maybe a more confident way of, of tackling things and also, you know, lancing this boil of, of polarisation, of having camps and identity where we actually, you know, listen to one another. And yes, those, those decisions and those discussions being consequential. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's back to that discussion we've had about agency. You know, am I empowered to make those changes or are we just talking about this? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that that's really, really important to think that through. And that sort of takes us through so many things because a lot of what we've been discussing today has in a sense is very macro, isn't it? It's very mm. kind of global, mm. but it's also very personal. Yeah. You know, mm. it's about our own food habits. It's about how we constitute our body, mm-hmm. you know, so, and we have to do this every day. So yes, it's kind of both abstract and personal. Mm. So we, we need to be kind of aware of how we're not outside of it, but we need to be also able to discuss it in ways that don't kind of always mean that we're, we're um, typecast or stereotyped or implicated in it. Mm. And I, I saw some research that's just come out that was looking at polarisation and how we perceive it to be more severe than it really is mm-hmm. because of mainstream media, because yeah, of social media. Yeah. But actually most people are, you know, contain multitudes and are capable of weighing mm. different ideas and, you know... Um, I think we forget sometimes we treat farmers as being quite a separate group, but they're still participating in the world, consuming the same media yeah. as the rest of us. Um, so, like this idea that they're, you know, perhaps all, you know, stereotyped as being all one way is not true. And like that's something that was really interesting for me as I met farmers and found the sort of multitude of different opinions and perspectives within the community mm-hmm. um, and how that manifests in terms of sort of farming practices as well. Yeah, no, I think that's very true as well. I, it's, um, I think mainstream media has a lot to answer for, for, for many things, um, but it, it is true. And I think you see this sort of massive, food is a really good example because of the veganism and or veganism basically, and then now there's a lot around sort of carnivore diet and all this kind of thing too. Um, and there's you know proponents of both, but obviously veganism is the loudest and biggest voice really. Um, but I go to an awful lot of environmental events, and most of the people there are, are broadly in agreement that we should eat less meat um, and have a more balanced diet. You know that is the prevailing kind of view of nearly everybody I know, whether or not they're particularly interested in the environment, they're, they're aware of that. Whether or not they do it is another matter, but they all kind of go, yeah, probably, but it's, I can't bother to change what I'm doing, but probably that's what I should do. Um, but in the media, it's totally the opposite. You never really hear that, that kind of view. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, it kind of gets everybody's backs up because you end up in this position of them and us. You know, oh, we're trying to save the world. But, yeah, and they don't. They're not interested. But actually, it's really not true at all. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that that's one of the things that we we occasionally also need to hold our hands up about. Mm. That you know that there's um you know and quite rightly we've been critical of big food companies and chemical companies in this discussion, but also we need to be careful that mistakes have been made in the other direction as well. Mm. In that I think. Um, a few years ago, I was very lucky to spend some time with focus groups talking about organic food and organic food packaging. Um, really fascinating to sit with people and just, you know, we looked at packets, we talked about how, why they made decisions, what stories influenced them, what the words were, all of those kind of things. And some of the, some of the problems I could see and were very clear was say we would look at a packet of organic an organic ready meal, which we could see as a contradiction in terms, you know, mm-hmm. um, 
But this organic ready meal went for a very high status, very expensive look. And so for all of those in other socioeconomic groups who might struggle to afford that, that just affirmed every prejudice they had. Mm. <laughs> you know, tick, tick, tick. Oh, yeah, it's not for me. It's far too expensive. I can't even read some of the words on the side of this. This just always looks far too high for looting for me. Um, so in that way, that piece of packaging both didn't attract people to eat it, but then actively put off people mm. who might otherwise have been sympathetic. Mm. And, I, and I think that the, you know, there's something to be thought about that. I always, I always notice that um, which, or which media outlets talk about food and how they talk about it you know, chimes in with some of their sort of work, greater worldview. And I think sometimes one of the things we need to do, as well as, you know, curb advertising, is just allow food to be food a little mm. bit more. You know, stop binding it up in some of these kind of tribal group kind of discussions mm. that actually, you know, this is what it is. It needn't be any more complicated. It needn't be any more difficult than that. Um, because, yes, there's all sorts of sort of strange games being played and it's sort of just lowering the temperature. Yeah, well, I think it's because a lot of, especially the environmental world, it comes across as incredibly preachy, even more so when you get into the vegan side of things, it's incredibly preachy. And that's one of the big challenges is that that connotation is kind of established now, I would say. And many people do sort of just look at that aspect, thinking actually, well, I don't want to listen to those guys because they just come across like assholes, you know, basically. And unfortunately, that is a, a view that, you know, comes up quite a lot. You know, I'm not even going to talk to them. I'm not interested. They're all idiots. You know, I've had enough. Um, and that's quite a difficult sort of position and starting point to break. But I think you're right when it comes down to even packaging and things. It's packaged in a way that's kind of a more elitist or or whatever else. Whereas reality is it is, it should be like incredibly common. You should be able mm -hmm. to go along it. You shouldn't even really notice that much, you know, that it is organic. Um, and the costs are not always that different either. You know, a lot of organic stuff's much more affordable now. Well, I mean, the, the, there's this great story, and also, I mean, this kind of relates in the sense that that's why I think sort of a lot of discussion about agroecology and regeneration has gone on because organic has got so far and then it's kind of stalled for various mm. reasons. Um, it's not inevitable, it's not permanent, but you know, it's got to a certain position. But years ago, there was a, an, a real life experiment done uh, in that the guy who was running Iceland became very passionate about organic food, basically scoured the world so that the shoppers in Iceland could have organic and non-organic at the same price mm -hmm. mm. in the shops. So, you know, this was a real, and to be fair to him, he bet his business on this. This wasn't a small, small thing. And it didn't work mm -hmm. because people walked through the shop and assumed by that stage that organic was more expensive, even when it was actually at price parity. Mm -hmm. So already there'd been a, a fix kind of already there about it being more expensive. And I think that that's one of the difficulties that we have to kind of unpack, is that if the only arbiter about buying food is price, mm -hmm. because we don't know other things, we can't make other judgments, then that's always gonna be a very difficult 
game for us to play if we assume that it is about price. Having talked to lots of people about you know, their purchasing decisions, I remember one gent saying to me, I don't buy organic food because that's not who I am. And I was like, wow, that's a big statement. Yeah. You know, that's a big statement. But equally, I get it. Yeah. You know, I get it. You know, I get it as well. So, you know, how do we then dissolve that sense that, you know, buying a pack of peas is some sort of statement Mm -hmm. about your social being? You know, how do we get it to be just a pack of peas? Yeah. I'm I'm glad you um, brought up this idea of identity around food um, because I think that comes in when we talk about farming as well Mm. and about how farming identities can be very tied to food production um, because of what I mentioned earlier in terms of that being incentivised since World War II and so forth. Um, You know, we're providing food for the nation. And so when you try and say, actually, could you take on another... Could you let that go a little bit and take on this other identity and become a a land manager and take care of some forestry and, like... Mm this and that that's quite um a sort of threat to someone's you know um yeah their social identity basically and that's something we uh, that's an idea that's been around in social science for a while of the good farmer like what constitutes a good farmer and often it's someone who has these very high yields and it's a bit now we're starting to see this idea of the good farmer being someone who um acts in a more of as more of an environmental steward and Um, has amazing biodiversity on their farm. But these sort of older ideas are still very prevalent and are still very difficult to um, to sort of supersede, I guess. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it comes back to sort of like trade-offs as well. Mm. It's, and that's kind of what, something we always forget in that a lot of the time it is a trade-off. Like, okay, we can be more environmentally sustainable, but that means we produce less food. And then, yeah, as you say, well, our job is to <coughs> produce food. That's what we've always done. Why would we stop doing that? Is. And what happens if we produce less food and we fill that gap with imports exactly, as well? Right. So yeah, but and also yeah, I mean it's very difficult, isn't it? To uh, the moral mission of feeding people is so high up there; mm-hmm. it's very mm-hmm. difficult to argue against. Absolutely, you know that's a kind of like um, you know it's, there's certain sort of positions in any society where you are doing good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, do not question me because I am doing good. You know, uh, I am a medic, therefore do not question me. You know, <laughs> all of those kind of things, which is a very powerful social position to inhabit. And then equally, that again, I think, has to become part of thinking through how do we position people so that they can't move. So if I feel that my identity as a good farmer is being challenged, then I'm unlikely. To want to give way and so as long as our discussion about politics with a small p you know how mm. we interact with one another is based upon our identity there's very little room for negotiation mm. you know so i mean that's sort of so you know as a middle-aged white straight guy that's kind of how i am mm. you know so i can behave differently of course i can i can do all sorts of things differently but some parts of my identity are very hard to negotiate away. So, you know, you can come to a quite, quite a difficult place when you're negotiating with somebody else about their identity. Mm-hmm. And a lot, a lot of our kind of politics has become about those clashes of identity. And so I don't think it's about saying to farmers, we don't want you to feed people. Of course we want you to feed people. 
we think you're incredibly important in our society and what you do is incredibly meaningful. But what we want to talk about is how you do that. Mm. And equally, we will play a role in that. You know, we will become good consumers or good purchasers. And that's how we're going to do that. You know, because if we keep batting against identities, and that's where I think you're absolutely right, you know, you get very preachy vegans, you get non-preachy vegans, but, you know, the preachy vegans are the ones we see. Mm-hmm. Um, equally, you know, yes, in the early days of organics, you've got some messianic figures who were telling all the farmers that they'd done everything wrong, um, that just got people's backs up, really, really got people's backs up, and in the long run didn't help them. Yeah. They didn't get their message across. And then equally, we have people who are not being very reflective, I always think that of, um, so I'm not a fan of big budget wildlife programs on the TV. I can barely watch them. And my wife discourages me because you just hear shouting and swearing at the television. Um, 50 years of these high gloss, you know, beautiful panoramas of nature have just accompanied the destruction of nature. Mm. So if these folks think that they're making any difference, I would say that the evidence that they are is very thin. Mm-hmm. What they're producing is entertainment. Yeah. And that's probably quite hard to sort of it's the same, take. Yeah, it's the same sort of shift, isn't it? Yeah. Basically, yeah. It's a very hard thing. Yeah. So you think, oh, I spent three months watching this seal being eaten by a killer whale on a beach in Chile. Surely that changed people's perceptions. No, they were just interested in the drama and moved along. Mm. You know, so all of us have perceptions that have to change. And those very sort of preachy positions have, you know, had counter effects that we wouldn't have wanted. But we understand that now, surely. That's the other bit. You know, we, we now understand that my behaviour will impact on the other person's behaviour. So let's think about how we do that. Let's not try and renegotiate our identities. Let's try and renegotiate the matter in hand, which is not my identity as a farmer. Yes, you can continue being a farmer. I will continue being me. But how we will do some things will be adjusted to deal with the realities that we're living in. And I think that that's, you know, that's the trick or that's the, the next step that I think we're trying to make collectively. But it's hard. Yeah, well, I think it has to be collaborative, doesn't it? I think that that's the that's the key to it all. It's about it's no it's not down to any one person. It's down to all of us to kind of come together and and do these things. Um, and I think that's why, especially with farmers, it, it can't be like an imposed solution. Mm. You need to be able to come in and go right. Let's work together to come up with a solution or a myriad of solutions to help improve the situation here. That one we can pay you for or help contribute to that transition. Um, but also we're going to help make you more resilient or whatever else in the long run. So you can demonstrate the range of benefits at that exact point and then over time as well. But I think now we're in, it's quite a difficult time because even now you still get a lot of sort of um, large environmental projects which are promoting sort of rewilding or, or whatever else and it's still not necessarily conveyed that well into the sense that actually it, will also be used for food production or can be used for food production. And is that food production contrary to our environmental aims when it comes to, you know, we shouldn't have any livestock or, or, or whatever else. Um, so going back to our, the beginning of the conversation mm. really here, but I think it's come around full circle really that that's very much 
a lot of the problem is actually around narrative. I think is one of the biggest problems to the whole movement is the narratives are quite mm. often warped or not necessarily understood or, and it is actually incredibly nuanced to actually resolve a lot of these problems and understand the depth to them, that there isn't sort of one solution to, to anything mm. really. Go on, Pippa. I was going to say, just um, speaking of narrative, I think what we're increasingly seeing is that members of the farming community are stepping up to sort of own the narrative and to sort mm. of share their stories and share the realities of their lives a lot more. And whether that's um, on traditional media or social media, there's um, that's a sort of increasing feature that um, I've been beginning, beginning to see. And I think that's really important because um, it does go both ways. Like, obviously, we need to have empathy for the lives of the farming community and understand what that's like. But also there needs to be empathy for the lives of people in urban settings. You know, we're not all just sitting working on computers, sending emails all day. You know, people have a wide range of different jobs, a wide range of different challenges. I think the understanding of some of the food poverty issues affecting urban communities can be, you know, lost a little bit sometimes. So there's a real need for these spaces where we can um, understand each other on a more more human level, I think, and understand the nuances that you've mentioned. Yeah, and I think that, you know, a lot of the work we've done here uh, as an institute has been about co-production and knowledge about getting peer groups together. So exactly as you mentioned, you know, there are schemes, there are subsidies, there are all of those things. But those are not often designed with the people who have to implement them. So, you know, how do we get people together? How do we have those discussions where we mutually do that? And then also acknowledging where problems are, problems of particular groups. And so those groups are the people who hold the answer. So, you know, empower them, talk to them get involved with them. But at the same time, that can be challenging because, you know, sometimes those groups hold, hold norms mm-hmm. that are not okay. And that needs to be challenged as well. You know, sometimes I've, I've worked with fishermen who are very reluctant to actually talk about the bad practices that other fishermen do because their solidarity is very tight. Mm-hmm. They know that happens, but they, they, they don't feel that they can sort of condemn their fellows. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, by not being able to do that, we, we struggle to move on. Mm-hmm. So I think that you know those kind of creations of dialogue, and that dialogue is difficult. Yeah. But I think it's also you know hugely potentially rewarding, and then also I think that this work about narratives is really important because then we can spot what the narrative is, mm-hmm. and then work against it. We know where some of these narratives go. We know what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know we can get ahead of what people are trying to do and sort of start to work about how we do that differently. And I think also, you know, maybe what's made me reflect this morning on our conversation is that we had, you know, great hopes at one point for social media as peer-to-peer communication. You know, that people in a rural area for the first time could talk to other people in a rural area directly and mediated. Maybe we underestimated the the forms of mediation, that the algorithms, the advertising that appeared in those media actually have slightly distorted that Mm -hmm. peer-to-peer. So its initial promise has been slightly debased, which is not to say that it can't be, you know, changed, but, you know, those hopes of peer-to-peer communication have dwindled a little bit, which I think maybe takes us back to more in-person encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think um, 
I've been doing quite a lot of in-person stuff since COVID ended. Um, as soon as things started opening up, I was pretty much back out. Um, and I've been going to a lot of quite big events lately. You know, like I went to a really big one in Brazil, was about 20,000 people there. And um, you know, some of these, for me anyway, in my experience, and I've said this all the way through, that the most important thing about a lot of events is the time between mm. whatever the activity is. So there might be a lecture. The lecture is great, but largely you probably knew a lot of what it was already about. But then in, but then the gap in between is when you meet the people that were actually talking about the subject or yeah. people are reflecting on it. And then those people that you talk to are the ones where you can quite often have a really big impact. Um, and I found that is often the most important time in any of these events. And that is completely gone with, um, you know, things being online and remote mm. um, and for me I, I stood down immediately from a lot of roles and things I had once I realized I sort of came onto that conclusion that actually some organizations I know are still not doing in-person stuff and for me it's just it's almost a waste of time because you, you miss that vital actual chance to discuss things with people and talk to people and actually really understand where they're coming from and again as I say for me that's possibly the most valuable part of a lot mm. of these things that are actually mm. going on which is why things like the Climathon are really valuable to be able to have events where you can actually sit around and, and talk to people and, and do all these things. Um, I was going to come back to this actually because um, I was wondering what the sort of outcomes and everything from that were. So how did the event, how did it go and what, were there any kind of big consensuses at the end or any actions that kind of came out of it? Mm. Um, so we just just pick up on your point about mm. um, sort of digital events. I think those obviously do have their benefits in terms of as you said, you know, connecting people over large distances that other wouldn't be otherwise <clears throat> wouldn't be able to come together. Yeah. And I think they can sometimes widen participation. Yeah, definitely. But they yeah. they contract it in other areas. So yeah. like both have their pros and cons. And we actually I should ran... say I agree I agree with you there. They they do both certainly have their place and they're both very important, especially for community engagement. We do a lot of community engagement and typically in person minimal online much more participation so yeah. yeah they definitely do have their place yeah yeah and actually the way we decided to format the climathon was that we had an initial webinar so the lunchtime the day before to do the sort of that info dumping side of things about here's what the situation is in the local area here's how it relates to the global picture that sort of thing mm. then we all got together the next day in the sort of hope that people would be a bit sort of primed and ready to come in and start to talk about these issues mm. So, um, yeah, it took place in a cow shed. Um, people were a little bit shy at first. We had to do a lot of the sort of facilitation stuff of like getting people to mingle, um, getting people to sort of talk about their ideas. Um, but what we found was that people were really interested and really engaged and really interested in chatting to each other. Um, we ended up incorporating this really big outdoor component that was on the advice of one of our partners recently trying to attract farmers but it ended up working brilliantly for everyone else in that we did a farm walk mm -hmm. which allowed us to go and look at different what was happening on the farm how that related to net zero um, and how that was actually practically working out for the farmer um, so in terms of the outcomes there's one of the groups was around um, renewables mm -hmm. so they all there was one of the group members already had a funded project it was about on-farm renewables, so they've taken some of the learnings from that into that project. Mm -hmm. One of the big issues for on-farm renewables, especially um, sort of yeah, in rural settings, is grid connectivity. Mm -hmm. um, like actually having the infrastructure to be able to be like, okay, I can put a wind turbine here, but I can't actually um, take the electricity yeah. to where it's needed. 
Um, so that was one. There was another group that was focused on pharma peer-to-peer learning. They were really inspired and wanted to take their um, take their idea further. So they went on to apply for funding. Um, I need to check in with them and find out what's happened, what's been the outcome of that. And another group were looking at composting um, farmyard manure. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the members was involved in a farmer cluster, so they went on and organised um, an event where a bunch of farmers got together to learn more about composting. So that idea sort of took root and then went on, um, went on without us really. Mm-hmm. So I think what we could have. Um, the way that the project worked, as I said, it was a short funding cycle. It was difficult to have something fully integrated. Um, but when these projects are run with um, people who have the power to make change locally, integrated with local authorities, for example, that can be really valuable. Mm-hmm. No, I, no, I completely agree. I think um, it's it's good to see that these actions went on and had a real impact and it's nice to see there was a range of topics there as well mm. so i think you know it's, it's those kind of opportunities and events that sort of break into those sort of mm. groups and communities and i think the farm clusters and things that are all being set up really are like a quite a critical part of of actually making these things implementable and, and more easily um achieved and sort of um what's the word not, not so much implemented, but started, get the conversation started mm. because you've, you've got the right people around the table. And I think as well, having groups of these people, you you can quite often have a slightly better conversation because they're a bit more, whilst on one hand they can be a bit more defensive because there's kind of a group of them, um, at the same time they can be a lot more receptive because they're willing to sort of have a more confident discussion because they've got people to back up their opinions and things so you can quite often have a very different conversation as well than you might do otherwise with one an individual person um, which i find is always quite a really interesting sort of dynamic as well when you're having these these sort of things take place mm. yeah. and it is intensive like it's a very like sometimes the climathon it can be 24 hours or some mm. people do them for 48 hours we can then sit down into one day just to try and make it more feasible for more people to attend you know people with children people working on farms and so forth so it is really intense and the you know what comes out of it is more the um like i was saying before the sort of social imaginaries and defining the idea more clearly and actually mm. thinking how does this abstract concept of net zero that's in the news all the time actually apply on the ground on my farm in the landscape around me and that's what we found was valuable from this event okay that's really interesting that's really interesting i hope you've enjoyed the episode so far here's a quick message from one of our sponsors make sustainability a priority throughout the design process with a suite of tools built specifically for landscape architecture and design vectorworks gives you the freedom to follow your imagination wherever it may lead with remarkably flexible software that integrates BIM for landscape and GIS workflows. Sketch, model, and document in a single tool with the world's most design-centric BIM solution. Discover Vectorworks Landmark and design without limits. Visit vectorworks.net to learn more. I um, I was trying to think what else we wanted to sort of cover because we've kind of covered a bit of everything really fairly well. Um, I think the only thing we haven't really talked too much about, which is a bit of a jump from what we were just talking about, but it's obviously even more people focus probably is the urban agriculture mm. side of things because obviously you have very very different groups of um well communities um in the urban environment often are m- obviously much more disconnected than perhaps you would do in, in the rural setting um but equally what's funny is you can quite often find more people that are more sympathetic to the change than you can in 
the rural environment. So this kind of a, is, again, I find a very interesting dynamic because you get, there's a lot of nimbyism in, in the rural world. You know, a lot of people don't want to see agriculture change. They even have nothing to do with farming because they enjoy places the way they are. They don't want, want change. Very big problem. Again, seen very clearly on Clarkson's farm, so worth checking out. But um, but uh, obviously that changes a lot in, in the urban setting. So I don't know if we want to talk a bit about, finish on a bit of Yeah, sure. Agriculture, sure. Maybe. Yeah, and if it's all right, can we come back to a couple of points? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. End, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think... <clears throat> Um, urban agriculture is is very varied, and I think we just need to um, acknowledge that in the when you look across how it's practiced in different places. A lot of the time, what we're actually talking about is urban horticulture, so people yeah. raising vegetables, um, raising animals in cities is is um, is trickier, but it does happen. But uh, particularly bees, you know, and uh, chickens bees and chickens and pigs but going bigger than that and goats mm -hmm. um, goats have worked as well but animals are particularly more difficult uh, vegetables are a lot less so i think looking at it across the piece as well is that that social diversity can be really important in the uh, certainly i've seen in belgium and holland urban agriculture projects with people who are migrants from rural areas so in where Ever they've migrated from. I'm thinking of a group of women who came from an area in Turkey. Um, they had a very rural background. They find themselves living in a city. Well, you know, growing and tending a vegetable plot is part of their kind of their way of life, what they brought with them. So they were really pleased to be able to do it. And then that did bring them a degree more of kind of access to fresh fruit and vegetables but also access to one another mm. so they could work together. But then also access to people who weren't in their group, who were similarly tending, you know, a plot as well. Um, we would describe it as an allotment, but, you know, it was a plot of land. So that kind of introduced an element of social mixing, social yeah. integration um, and encounter, as well as producing some fruit and veg. Equally, you know, there's quite a lot of therapeutic use of urban agriculture. So, you know, from a general well-being kind of perspective of, you know, how do I relieve my, my stress and strains? So I've seen sort of corporate outings of bankers picking beans and digging, and that's all worked very well. But equally, there are sort of various uses of horticulture sort of for people with more profound mental health mm -hmm. challenges. And then equally, uh, young people in probation style situations where again it's sort of it's used so it has a big social component um, which for many people who are focused on pro productivity is a bit of a disappointment because what you're producing is a lot of community you're not producing a lot of food yeah. and arguably what we need to start doing is producing more food to keep up with the community that's a bit more of a struggle mm. to actually have highly productive uh, horticulture or agriculture in an urban setting part of that is just because then you do bump up against yeah people are happy to have an allotment near them but uh, an intensive horticulture plot even if it's an organic one is a is, you know it's a place of work people are yeah. going for it it's, it's going to be people working so that then constrains it and also land in urban areas is really valuable 
So you are under that constant tension that somebody's looking at that plot thinking, I can turn that into millions of dollars, pounds, euros, get these people out my way. Mm -hmm. um, so that is, that's those kind of tensions that exist around it. Having said that, we could argue that urban agriculture would be a really powerful force for stopping some of those things in the city, that the densification or the gentrification can be arrested by saying, yes, people need parks, but also they need allotments, they need to be able to grow, need to be able to help each other grow. Um, facilitation can be really important when we think about it. You know, it can, it can be a project. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all come to my city farm and here's a professional grower to help you. But equally, why not have a detached grower who goes to the allotments, who helps people, who actually assists people. So there's lots of models out there. Yeah. Um, often, certainly in the UK, one of the problems has been coming to sell it. You know, traditionally, you're not allowed to sell produce from an allotment, which has been a limit. So it's about self-sufficiency yeah. or self-provisioning. So, you know, overcoming bumps like that. But I think that the big, the big question is giving people security of land giving people access to land, that they can then say, right, I'm going to invest, I'm going to build a business, and I have a future for this business because I've got the land that I need to be able to do this for a sustained period of time. And then also, the funding has tilted towards social outcomes with good reason, you know. Mm -hmm. So then we need to start tilting the funding towards productivity and saying that this is a positive thing that we want say, vegetables grown locally. I mean, it's, it's bananas in some senses, isn't it? That, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we have a shortage of, I don't know, there's a storm in Morocco, and suddenly all of our lettuces dry up. Well, why aren't there greenhouses and polytunnels circling every major city in the UK so they're just trucked very locally? Well, that's a classic example of these kind of crazy food chains and the strange logic of that kind of concentration of ag agriculture. So it's just steps to give people access and security of their land would make a huge difference. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Again, I think the challenges in an urban environment are often very much pushed to the fringes. Um, and from my perspective as landscape architect, we have a big issue of sort of the ongoing management and maintenance of these spaces. So you mentioned um, about the different examples of it being done. One of the big problems we often come across is where places want it to kind of tick boxes or they want it to try and be sustainable. Yeah, people can grow their own food. I remember one I was working on was a student accommodation. They wanted areas for the students to grow their food. Um, and I had to sort of say, well, when are the students here? Well, it's like autumn to sort of spring and then they leave very early summer. So actually, who's going to be here to sort of harvest the food that you're growing not potentially no one uh, so who's gonna so essentially you're gonna end up with a load of completely bare beds which do nothing so either you need to hire someone to look after all of that and basically garden it and then students can take some food and maybe get involved if they're interested but actually as an idea it just doesn't really hold much water at this mm. point in time so and there's a lot of those sort of like realities that come up and there's some really great organizations like incredible edible which make use of sort of um underused areas mm. or spare bits of land that don't really have much of a function at the moment but but they're lucky because they've got that very strong community spirit to be able to look after it 
when it comes to the bigger production of food in cities, then it, exactly as you've, you've spelled out really well, it's, there's a major issue of availability of land, um, availability of resources to actually be able to manage it. And I think, I always wonder how much that's going to change with technology, because I think we're going to see a lot more kind of smaller scale, like hydroponic, aquaponic kind of things. But then you, but doing that, you lose the greening of the city in a sense, because with, with the community gardening that we have at the moment or urban agriculture or whatever we want to call it, um, you have that kind of additional benefit of it greening and making the space more active. But as we go towards a more productive system and approach, whilst you may have maintained the community side, there is a risk that you start losing some of the uh, like aesthetic and biodiversity side as it goes to more like um, industrial kind of processes. Not to say that either of those is a bad thing because you need to have, again, it's about balance, you need to have both. Um, but I think there's gonna be some really interesting opportunities for sort of how they both sort of like marry up and, and work together in the range of different, I think we'll see more different types of urban agriculture like springing up quite rapidly. I think so, I think one of the, the difficulty, and again, this is about a little bit, there's lots of promissory science and promissory technology so the, the, the controlled environments kind of growing, which is essentially, you know, you could put it in a, a container, shipping container, grow vegetables under ultraviolet light and control mm -hmm. conditions, massively intensive on energy, mm -hmm. which is sort of, you know, so that limits who could use it. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some people who it would work for. So, you know, if you live somewhere with a lot of hydropower, mm -hmm. say like the north of Norway, and you're in need of fresh veg, well, this might be the answer for you, yeah. you know. So that, that's, that's, you know, there's a slight horses for courses. Mm -hmm. And you see some occasionally some architectural fantasies. I saw a multi-story chicken farm, uh, specifically designed by the architect to be in an urban environment. Nobody wants to live next door to a multi-story chicken farm. You know, it's just never gonna get built. So, yeah. you know, you can imagine... Once they smell it, what? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just, yeah. you know... And, but it, it will look fantastic, mm. but, you know, it was never going to be built. So I think that that important bit about greening the environment is something that needs to be thought through. And exactly like you're saying, you know, what do we mean about feeding ourselves? Mm -hmm. You know, self-provisioning would be the kind of more technical term we might use in sort of providing some of your food. So, yeah, that could be from a window box could be gathering apples mm. in the autumn. It could be, you know, how do we make the, the more food in an urban environment? So for example, fruit trees can be the bane of many councils because they're messy. You know, it encourages people to use the park in a way that maybe they're not so comfortable with. But again, so let's think about how we could do that differently. You know, how could we, so, you know, back to your sort of student dorm kind of thing. I met a gardener at an old folks home. And so it's a horseshoe shaped and the gardens were in the middle. He was a professional gardener. Most of the people in the old folks home were not able physically to do very much gardening, but they could watch him and then they could come and do what they could do. And then, so they felt that they had a hand in it. Some of that produce mm. then went into the home. And again, because this sort of was on the boundaries of therapy, 
wellness, all of those things, it worked really well. Yeah. So, you know, maybe it's about thinking, you know, it's not just an investment in the land and the idea, it's an investment in people, mm-hmm. you know. So if those students knew that, you know, Sue the gardener was going to be there 12 months of the year growing their vegetables that went into the university canteen, that and they could go and help, they could be part of that, maybe that would be a solution rather than, you know, there's some empty plots that will quickly be abandoned. And mm-hmm. when it comes to, you know, fruition, you won't be there. Yeah. Well, I, I think it, it's a really, really good series of good points because I think it, it goes back to what we were saying before about there's no, like, one solution. And that, again, even with urban agriculture, it's something that comes up a lot. Oh, well, what's the point? You're never going to feed everybody. You're never going to produce enough food. And you think, well, yeah, that's not necessarily the point. It's like one aspect of what we're, we're trying to do. Yeah, and you're absolutely right with the university example. There's some really good opportunities of companies that are doing a lot of things to try and make use of stuff. Rob, um, the man behind the camera was mentioning to me just the other day about a lady who um, has an apple company where they gather up all of the um, spare apples around the town and then they use them for whatever you use apples for, selling apples, apple juice, cider maybe, all of those kind of things. And you think, yeah, well, that's a, that's a really great niche that's created for a small business, a small enterprise that's got some potentially really nice, valuable product um, that you know would be expensive to buy anywhere. But it's supporting that like community cohesion. And we, we had a really good episode, I think, the, I think the first episode we did actually with John Little. He does a lot of work, or used to do a lot of work in looking after sort of housing estates and places like that as sort of the landscaper. Mm-hmm. And they sort of quickly realized that they were actually a caregiver as much as a landscaper because for many of the people on that estate, they were the only person they saw, or they were one of the few people they saw regularly. And for them, it was just people wanted to come and talk to them whilst they were doing the work. And they soon realized that actually the landscape they were going and spraying some weeds on all the time really wasn't doing anything for the people there. So actually, what did the people want from that? So then they started growing vegetables with them and all this kind of thing. And they completely changed the way that the management of that estate would sort of be would, would be looked at. Mm. Um, and that's where the, the value comes in. I mean, I've done a lot. Um, I've given talks to councils and things on sort of care homes and designing for care. And one of the points I sort of made there was, you know, you don't just have a responsibility for your residents, you have a responsibility for your staff. So actually what are the staff also doing as part of their routine to make sure they're healthy and they're active? So actually could the staff cycle out and some of them go and do some of the gardening for an hour every other day or or something like that? How do they actually get involved with those activities too? Because it's important for their health and well-being, especially when you have an area that's massively short on staff um, and, and very high stress like care, you need to, to rethink the relationship that people have with their workplace. And then it comes down to other professionals as well coming in to help transition that, which might be totally unrelated. Um, and the, this is, I found this quite an interesting example because there was a company using a sort of tablet system with sort of emojis and you'd press the emoji of what the person felt like after your visit, opposed to having all this paperwork. And that was supposed to save nurses five hours a day in admin, this like simplified process they had that basically auto-generated reports. Um, And you sort of go, okay, well, if you implement something like that, they now have the time to actually do something beyond just going in and checking on patients. They can now actually be active with them. They can do something that's more fulfilling for them as well. So it's kind of about that sort of culture shift and identifying other opportunities to facilitate the transition to a better kind of way of living mm. and life cycle and, and 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 also i think that the yeah. other thing i would guess 
what I've seen over the last 10 years about urban agriculture, and this kind of goes back to Pippa's bit about the social imaginary, seen some beautiful, um, slightly crazy experiments happen of people trying to grow fish, mm. trying to grow mushrooms, you know, brilliant little micro um, experiments that usually ended in commercial failure and a degree of heartbreak mm. because, you know, they were always up against it, but they were sort of beautiful kind of attempts to try and do something different and broaden our imagination. And I think that, you know, as long as we rely upon kind of highly motivated, highly visionary individuals to try and do that without any backup, then we'll just see that process of crash and burn, crash and burn, mm. you know. And I've even, you know, occasionally people will kind of drop me a message and say, oh, I'm thinking about growing fish. And I go, wow, well, you might want to talk to this person yeah. who attempted that four years ago. And you've got no memory of that because mm. that's disappeared from social media but yeah. that person did so don't you know learn from them and have another go but it's also then how do we have a bigger structure that says you know in this envelope of the city as well as all these other things we want to accomplish we want to accomplish you to be able to forage for, for fruit we want you to have opportunity to grow some food and we'll support you mm. in growing some food and then you know we're going to give some space to that and a bit like, you know, with the park, it's no point in just sort of going, ta-da, here's a park. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to get people using it. You've got to show people what can be done. Mm -hmm. And then equally, there are technological things. I think um, there was talk in Denmark mm -hmm. about having a fish farm in the river mm -hmm. of one of the cities. Well, that makes, you know, could make a lot of sense, site-specific, but, you know, could make a lot of sense to improve the bathing water, all sorts of things that could come... Mm -hmm from farming fish in that way but what is okay in the city and what's not so mm -hmm. equally i've seen proposals for like floating dairy farms yeah you know, maybe yeah maybe in the north sea yeah yeah may, may, maybe yeah, not yeah, yeah. you know so it's it's about having that but the, whoever's running that city to have the vision that food and growing some food and being involved in some way is part of what urban life is mm -hmm. about and then equally the obverse is maybe that will free up rural areas in a different way. Mm -hmm. You know, so that slight, so that yeah. binary that we do food here, and we do, you know, commerce here, we surrender, that actually some rural areas are actually quite industrial. So mm -hmm. say like the Forest of Dean near here is a quite industrial space. Doesn't, you know, isn't perceived by outsiders mm -hmm. as such, but historically it's an industrial space. So, you know, let's try and again, add to that sort of nuance mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think i think it's, it's it is interesting to see some of these solutions come forward and i think as well it's the urban agricultural side for me is is one which you can quite easily see become quite detached in the way that it's sort of applied because there are so many sort of fanciful examples i remember once i saw an example for a vertical farm but he uses a special type of like titanium alloy to like make it. And the idea was that the structure of the building would help improve air pollution by breaking down certain molecules because of whatever this alloy was. And you sit there thinking, you think, well, you're never going to pay for that with the production of food, which is a pittance, you know, mm. it's, it's really not particularly valuable. When you have got enormous, you know, crazy costs like that to implement some crazy structure, you know, so it kind of, there is kind of this, 
discussion around yeah horses for courses what are we actually trying to achieve here and what is appropriate and those things are really interesting to see it's lovely to see the innovation and you know the ideas are often really cool but um actually you know they're not really applicable at all in any way anywhere in the world so it's it's a real there is almost kind of this back to basics like the basic systems we have actually work really really well which is why we've done them for yeah. thousands of years in, in many cases so it, it that's not to say we shouldn't innovate and we shouldn't come up with new ideas, but but it is interesting. Like, just there's such a sort of breadth of ideas and craziness to it because we have such high values of properties and such crazy buildings yeah. and cities. It kind of lends itself to go down that sort of crazier. Because if you could pull it off, there would be a payday. Yeah, you exactly. Know, yeah. And, and I, but I think that this again is back to the sort of social imaginary about you know what what do we select that we do. And I think that that's one of the difficulties is so often um, an innovation is foisted upon us for a particular reason that we don't necessarily have any control over. And I think part of what we've been discussing in things like climathons and is a sort of democratic process of consideration and debate that we want to choose how we wish to progress you know, we want to be able to have a dialogue that we want to do this, we don't want to do that. And some of that's going to be constrained by methane and carbon and things like that. And some of that's going to be constrained by our cultural choices, what we feel is appropriate for where we live. And, and I think in some senses, urban agriculture sometimes throws that technology in front of us. Yeah. You know, we could grow salads underground under UV lights. Do we want to do that? Maybe not. Mm -hmm. You know, we could grow. You know, we could grow fish in the river. Would that be good? Well, yeah, maybe it would. Okay, we'll do that. But it kind of gives us an election of mm. what we decide. Whereas, at the moment, very often in a rural space, if you want to run with that technology, you run with it mm. because that's the food-producing space. Yeah, and we won't question that. But we might question it if you brought it to a city. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have to sort of maybe bring that level of discussion to both. So, you know, yes, would we want to be spraying large amounts of glyphosate around in a city? Probably not. Mm -hmm. So why would we want to do it in a rural area? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I get yeah. the argument that there aren't like a whole busload of children driving by just yeah. at that moment. But at the same time, it yeah, throws into yeah. Throws into relief. Why are we making those choices? So a bit like keeping animals, you know. Yes, there are sort of, um, you know. I think they had street goat in Bristol. That kind of keeping a goat and killing it. Um, people didn't think it was going to work. People thought people would become attached to the animal and wouldn't be willing to have it slaughtered. Turned out they were quite happy to do that. Mm. Not everybody. You know, but again, ethical decisions, isn't it? We've always assumed when people see the decision about things like slaughter, that they might back away. Some people do, and that's fine. That's their, yeah. you know, that's their personal ethical choice, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Other people don't. Mm -hmm. But we've learned from that process that that's not a universal. Yeah. And, and in both directions, it's not a universal to accept it, and it's not a universal to reject it. But by foregrounding those things. So I think there's something that urban agriculture brings to the discussion that's really refreshing. Mm. And it does open our imaginations as to what we would yeah. want to do.
Well, it's because, it, yeah, it's, it's the advantage of it being such a complex environment. It creates so many more like synergies and opportunities mm-hmm. and niches to try and exploit. It's quite exciting, really. And, and also, you have to seek permissions in a different way. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a far more, you know, as you'll appreciate as a landscape architect, it's a far more regulated space Yeah, in that sense. So if you're going to do it, and it will be subject to much more scrutiny. So, yeah, that's where I think there's a lot, a lot of learning to be had in that dialogue. And then equally back to, um, we probably need more professional farmers in mm. urban spaces to bring that kind of yeah that kind of pragmatic. How are we going to make a business? How are we going to make this work? How are we going to do this at scale? Mm-hmm. You know, because arguably a lot of the amateur farmers in rural areas have been responsible for a lot of the innovation. You know, they've rocked up and said, "Oh, let's do this." And their neighbours have thought, that's crazy. Mm. You know, but actually, some of it stuck, some of it fell away. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I think we need, we need innovation everywhere. Innovation is always important in you know, trialling and coming up with new ideas. And I think we need more farmers everywhere as well, because I know there's a big shortage of farmers everywhere. So, and I think, so I think I do wonder if there's going to become a much greater onus on urban farming simply because I think there's going to be, at least in the UK, there's going to be a contraction of like rural farming, so to speak, because mm. there just simply aren't the farmers. You now I'm meeting more and more farmers now that are going bankrupt or um, are sort of tr- going to transition away from farming completely down the sort of rewilding for biodiversity route and then just kind of almost like walk away, basically, um, because they, because it's no longer viable. Um, so there's going to have to be a big, there's, there's going to be a big shift Mm. I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be yet, but there is going to be a big shift, I think, coming but, up soon. And it may be that we end up with a lot more, you know, import or imports going to play more of a part. Are we going to try and invest more in producing more of our own stuff, but in a different way? Um, you know, what is going to happen? And I think at the moment, no one really knows. No, I mean, Pippa spoke very eloquently earlier about the post-war experience. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting at looking at the experience between the interwar period or through the early 20th century. And this is sort of something that we need to we need to think about as specifically as British people, is that in the early 20th century, agriculture was set up to be part of an imperial system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the empire, you know, we produced the steel, the cotton, woven cotton goods, all of that sort of stuff. That's what we did as the imperial hub. The colonies and dominions produced all the less manufactured stuff and brought it to us. That was the kind of point economically of what we were doing as an empire. So yes, Australia and Canada were like the bread baskets of the empire. So that model in the UK meant that, you know, we didn't bother a lot with agriculture. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of farms were left to go to rack and ruin. A lot of farming practice was really poor. Farmers had a really difficult time um, because the assumption was we could trade our way to whatever we wanted. Now, as the sort of, you know, largest, wealthiest empire of that period, that conceit had a point. Mm-hmm. It also, you know, obviously was based upon the subjugation and violence towards huge numbers of people as well. But, you know, economically it had a point. And I think there's still part of our thinking is that we can always buy on the international market whatever we want. Mm-hmm. And it will always be there. Yeah. And I think events such as the war, 
you know, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine and also the destabilization caused by climate change throw into stark relief whether that's actually true. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, that, and, I, and I think that that's maybe another part of our um, discussion of, <clears throat> you know, we've all lived through a massive interruption and tragedy that was COVID sort of pandemic that's just, you know, still tailing away now. So we've seen that, you know, we can learn lessons from that or we can pretend that it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I sort of think, you know, when we look at like the flu pandemic in the early 20th century, really interesting that people almost pretended it didn't happen. We had to resurrect the memory of that. So that's how they chose not to learn those lessons. You know, we could choose to do differently, but, you know, it's whether we will. Yeah, that's it. I think it goes back to this sort of resilience side of things, doesn't it? And making sure that we're, we're resilient for whatever kind of comes and at least having a degree of sort of protection. I think that's a really good point because we are kind of at this point where we have an opportunity to reevaluate sort of everything we're doing and I think how we can do it more effectively. But also I think because of this sort of transition now for especially around like biodiversity net gain, I've been having quite a few conversations with people where we sort of say, okay, well, we're offsetting the impact of biodiversity, reinstating nature on these larger states or farms or wherever they may be. But actually, do we then have to offset the agricultural production somewhere else? And if so, how do we quantify that? And how does that work? Because actually, it's not just renaturing places. Mm. Um, it's also building houses. You know, if we're building a house on a farmland, we're losing all that agricultural production. So then do we look at offsetting that? And then what happens with that? So for instance, <coughs> could that funding be used to implement some of these larger scale, um, sort of more industrial um, hydroponics, aquaponics, whatever systems that is an emerging technology to really kickstart that. And, you know, I think it's one supermarket can produce the equivalent of 700 acres of farmland if you take the same area. So it's quite striking. So it's, can that be implemented in a way that then supports that as well as the other forms of like urban agriculture mm. or whatever else it may mm. be. So there's kind of another discussion opening up now, which I think is a really, really important one on resilience around, okay, Yes, we're looking at some aspects of like, well, we call it ESG maybe, but ESG is still, in my opinion, very, very narrow in its breadth. We actually need to look and go, right, okay, what are the knock-on impacts of all of these various things and how does, what needs to be introduced to correct that one? And then what needs to be introduced to correct that one? You know, it's, a, it's an ever sort of growing yeah. ladder of mm. solutions and ideas that kind of need to be fostered to actually start thinking ahead to these problems, opposed to just you know, dealing with the fires that are currently raging around us, people think, okay, well, what's causing the next one and how do we stop that before it starts? Because that will relieve pressure on what we're already trying to address. Um, we need um, a land use framework, which is hopefully coming <laughs> later this year, but that's not something that's really been thought through yet in terms of, we've touched on this a few times, managing these competing demands around food production, house building, space for nature, um, and yeah, how to integrate all of that and still... Yeah, be able to feed ourselves. Mm. Yeah, it's a real challenge. And the trouble is, again, like we were saying earlier, there's no ideal solution. Mm. You know, it's, it's trade-offs, isn't it? And, and I guess that also, you know, it's the, about the, again, about reintroduction of some words, isn't it? In the um, land use framework, kind of implies to me a land use plan. Mm. Mm. That actually we think about how we're going to do this in the, 
you know, and that we actively make that happen. Mm. I'm always slightly wary of a framework because it sort of says, this is what you may do or may not do, but it doesn't commit us to any particular mm-hmm. activities, which I think takes us back to your point, Niall, about, you know, we're fighting fires mm. rather than thinking, you know, we need to set up a fire brigade. <laughs> yes. Know, we need to do some incremental burning of this forest to yeah. stop it sort of building up. You know, we need a plan. Mm. And, and I think that that's part of, you know, what we've been kind of talking about here, isn't it, is that lots of this has happened by the initiative of a particular industry or a particular innovator who's been able to sort of find their way and launch a product range or take up a technology or do a particular thing. Sometimes we've been able to say, no, we don't want that. Other times we've just been, my God, you know, you know like ultra-processed food. There was never a kind of, let's introduce this. You know, let's have a... No, it appeared, we started eating it, it carried on. Mm-hmm. If we'd had a plan about is that a good thing or not a good thing, we probably would have said it wasn't a good thing, even with the evidence at the time. So it's part, I think, what we're talking about is, you know, having more deliberation, having more plan, and maybe having a different balance between plans, mm-hmm. market mechanisms, and those kind of things, and that markets have pushed us in particular directions. And when we confront something like the climate crisis, there's going to be a role for markets, but that's going to be limited. Mm. And also the people, I think that's where the Climathon is really interesting, is, you know, a sort of focused on a people making deliberative democratic decisions. And then markets are the servants of that, rather than what I fear sometimes when we talk about food is the other way around is that we've become the servants of food markets. Mm. Now, I don't think that that was the original intention, but that sort of seems to be where we are now. Yeah, mm. I think that's, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Um, you had a couple of points you said you wanted to come back to. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt the flow of the no, 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 discussion, no, 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 but no, just um, to go back to a couple of things around the sort of technical aspects of the methane conversation, because I think I missed out a few mm-hmm. um, areas of it. So... I talked about how um, methane is less long-lived in the atmosphere than CO2. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's different ways to measure that and that we normally talk about um, global warming potential or GWP um, 100, so over 100 years. And that um, puts methane as having 28 times more warming potential than CO2. And there's um, now evidence to suggest that there's another way to look at it. That's one way, and that's fine in some contexts. It's what you see used in the IPCC reports. Mm-hmm. The IPCC also acknowledges that that's in some ways flawed and can give us a, not the whole picture. So people now talk about, and farmers often talk about, um, GWP star, mm-hmm. which is a slightly different way of looking at it, which looks more at the warming caused by that methane rather than making it equivalent to CO2. It's how does that happen? So if you have CO2, it's, you know, it's being emitted, it's increasing in the in the atmosphere, and it hangs around for a really long time. Whereas when you have an increase in methane production, for example, you um, suddenly grow your herd of cows by 100 or whatever, that's this, you think about it as an initial pulse of methane that then degrades. Mm-hmm. So the sort of outcome of all of that, and I'm not a, um, a climate scientist, so I hope that I'm articulating it in a way that makes sense, is that once you've got a stable herd, 
they're not adding additional methane to the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But what it means is that if you reduce methane emissions, it can have a really profound impact in terms of reducing warming and perhaps even going into cooling. Mm -hmm. So what that means practically is that me it doesn't mean that we're saying um, we don't have to worry about it because of this new measurement. Actually, what it means is that we've... Um, it's a potential way to make a really big difference and that we're potentially going to be asking the agriculture sector and other emitters of methane, which I'll come back to in a second, to take some of the hit to allow us to slow, have a bit more time to get rid of CO2 from fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to mention other emitters of methane because we can't only talk about cows and sheep and ruminants. We also have to think about... Um, you know, flaring from fossil fuels and leakage from gas pipes and all these other ways that we could be, um, we've, you know, we've obviously got the global methane pledge now that we could be having an impact on that and that we could be like rapidly stepping down our emissions in that respect. So, yeah, I just wanted to highlight that as well, because I think it's something that comes up a lot, and especially in the farming community, this conversation. It's really interesting that you'll be, you know, in a field talking to a farmer and they'll name drop Oxford academics because mm. of, you know, the work they're doing around this. Um and yeah, I just, yeah, I just omitted that earlier. So I wanted to make sure <laughs> make sure I covered all the bases. I think that also speaks to this, the the complexity of this topic and the fact that it can be quite fraught. That I'm a bit yeah. anxious to make sure I cover everything and I don't mm -hmm. leave out anything because someone on the internet might be cross about it. It, it is a, it's a a difficult area sometimes because there are so many factions that are very impassioned and that you. It's very complex, and you don't want to present it as being black and white or as being just about this issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's that's very interesting to hear. So I knew I knew a bit about sort of methane having an initial impact and then sort of wearing off, but I didn't realise it was more like a kind of like an initial sort of pulse in the way that it it, it was happening. So in terms of managing that, then from sort of cattle and things, you say about a stable herd. What, what does that quite mean? So does that mean well, the cows are very anxious and they fart a lot when they're like introduced to new cows and that's the problem? Or is it more about the, the more sort of land use management and how? how I mean, so it's just stable in terms of numbers. Okay. So, so in that you're not dramatically increasing or reducing. So you're looking more like a farm specific level? Yeah. No. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was more, um, there was some sort of causation for, for it from the animals themselves as it being that initial pulse. So looking at the farm then, so the farm will have an initial increase in cows, that obviously means more methane. So that is still having like a long-term knock-on, well, production of, of methane basically. Yeah, but it's being broken down at sort of this quite rapid uh, rate, I guess. So what you're saying is when someone's grandfather first, you know, mm -hmm. grew the herd, built the herd up, that released, um, increased the methane emissions overall. And then that now that that has stayed there, that's sort of like now become a sort of steady, steady state. Oh, okay. And again, I probably some people would would contest that and say no, we need to stick to GWP one hundred. Um, but it kind of is it saying that we need to um, look at things a bit more holistically. Obviously, in the past we would have had large ruminants that would have been wild, and we've really um, decimated our wild populations of mm -hmm. you know large mammals, haven't we? And now what we have is that the most common animals on the planet are farmed animals. Mm. So it's looking at these systems where you've got them very concentrated, really huge numbers, and thinking actually how do we return that to a more 
natural state. And there's also, I should mention as well, there's the argument about extensive agriculture, isn't there, in terms of that being like less efficient um, in terms of we should go for um, efficiency in terms of the minimum amount of feed to produce the maximum amount of product, mm. the minimum amount of emissions per kilo. Um, but then you end up moving moving animals inside again. And yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, <clears throat> then, yeah, then it goes back to factory farming. Yeah. It's yeah. not quite the best. We had a very interesting discussion about something similar on recycling, because actually recycling a lot of waste materials produces more carbon than just getting new ones. Mm-hmm. And you kind of go, well, what's the best option there? Again, it's like, it's complicated. We don't want to keep mining stuff. You know, we should be reusing what we're doing, but that isn't contrary to like carbon objectives. So, but there's other waste objectives. So where do you sort of draw the line? It's not, it's just not that straightforward. But I think there are some, there's new, again, there's new technologies coming in um, and products. I know there's um, a lot of seaweeds that are being produced that help reduce the amount of methane mm. that cows produce and things like that. So you're still going to have to supplementary feed them at some point. So again, it's kind of about that education and making sure that that's an affordable thing to do and could be funded somehow perhaps to help farmers actually, again, make that transition and introduce yeah, those things. Feeds are, you know, methane-reducing feed supplements are coming in and that mm. works amazingly. If you've got an, a dairy farm where your cows are coming in to be milked at a specific time, if you're doing extensive beef production, how do you get those to the cows? How does yeah. that work? Or if they're t- entirely grass-fed and you don't really supplement them? Exactly, yeah. and if you've got cows in, um, one thing we haven't talked too much about actually is, is cows in sort of rewilded or like very natural systems. So I know there's a lot of wildlife trust sites that use cattle to manage them. Yep. In that instance, it's almost impossible. I used to go, I used to do some work for the wildlife trust and go sort of cow hunting to try and find where the hell the cows were. And we sometimes spend three hours looking for the cows in a woodland mm. because you can't see them because um, of woodland. Yeah. You know, so um, and in that instance, again, it's very, very difficult to implement. But the benefit of having them in that woodland is the woodland is much more efficient. The woodland will store carbon better. There'll be more biodiversity there. So again, it's kind of these trade-offs. And then, it, you, and then very often we end up in the same debate about food of actually, oh, we shouldn't eat those animals. No, they're doing a natural sort of process. We should let them die and be eaten and all this kind of thing by by natural systems and you go okay yeah that's one option that's great but at the same time the byproduct of them doing all this amazing conservation work is also meat so maybe we should eat some as well so there's still even those things it, it throws up a whole another sort of controversy and range of topics to kind of go off into to discuss um but again it just shows that it's a very complicated sort of set of there's so many different circumstances to look at and so many different outcomes it becomes a very muddied kind of pool and and conversation to kind of explore all of it and come up with um an option or an opinion but i think this is a really nice example of how um like a global perspective suggests one thing Mm. so you know as pip is saying you know a a rapid decline in methane production buys us time Mm. you know buys us time to deal with other carbon intensive forms but you know if we're going to ask that of agricultural communities and of ourselves we need to be confident that those other carbon issues are being addressed Mm. you know so if you're asking a group of people to go first so you're effectively saying to the agricultural community you go first Mm -hmm. and then the oil industry will follow Mm -hmm. really you know, would we trust the oil industry to follow? I'm not sure we would. Yeah. So the farmers and agriculture kind of go, well, yeah, okay, why don't you go first? Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to have some way of making sure that people do go first 
And then in sort of, if we go down a level to what do I do? Okay, so I give up eating meat or I give up eating beef. Okay, that's great. But then if I go and eat chicken, well, chicken has a carbon footprint. It's not, not you know, it's not a negligible carbon footprint. Well, carbon, yeah, it's not as bad as methane, but it lasts a lot longer. Mm. So if I substitute for something that's more damaging in the long term, then yes, we bought some time, but we haven't bought a solution. Mm. So, and I think that that's where these framings come in. Yeah, that's a really interesting And point. so, you know, mm. yes, <clears throat> and that's where less meat, better meat helps, mm. you know, but actually, and also giving people a guide as to what does less meat really look like, and it's probably a lot less than people would like to think. And that's the other bit that I think has become unpalatable. So, and again, I, for me, it takes it back to a plan. If the plan is we're going to reduce methane and then we're going to tackle those more complicated things like energy transmission systems and transport and those things, then we have to know how that plan's going to be enacted mm-hmm. and be confident that governments are going to make that happen. And that's the missing bit in a lot of climate change discussions at the moment. It's all voluntary contributions. It's mm. all this, it's all that. You make a pledge, you propose that you'll do this. Well, we know that people renege. We know that people don't actually follow through. And that's undermining people's confidence in what needs to be done. Mm. No, I think that's a fantastic segue into my last sort of question, which is what do you think needs to be done? What are the big problems you see right now? And what do you think some of the solutions might be? That's a really big question. It's a very big yeah, question. Yeah, I was going to say it's an end question. That's like yeah. a beginning question. It is. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, it's like a beginning question. But I think in, in terms of what we've talked about, is there anything that you guys see? We can maybe narrow it down a little bit. Maybe um, is there anything specific that you've seen that you think is a really good sort of solution or opportunity to sort of look at or area that needs to sort of be understood more, perhaps? I think I'll go policy. Um, yeah. And say that I think some one of the big issues in the moment in terms of food policy, agricultural policy, is that there's a lot of disconnect and distrust between farmers and DEFRA. Mm-hmm. And that, that has been compounded recently by the delays and lack of information around the new environmental land management schemes. Mm-hmm. Now those have now we've now got more information in the last few months. Um, so that's going to start to be implemented. But there's a lot of concerns around what it means in terms of upland farming, that it's being unfair in terms of favouring arable. And I think dealing with that mistrust and implementing some sort of land use framework or land use plan so that people have got a clearer roadmap mm-hmm. is really important. And I think that doing that through deliberative processes and through co-design is what's really important and we're never going to get it perfect we're never going to you know find the perfect way to co-design things because it's really difficult when you're a state and you've got this huge you know machinery that has to has to kick into place for anything to happen but I think um, taking those ideas forward is something that could be really powerful and working on Mm -hmm. trust as the sort of foundation to making change and to people shifting their identities in new ways as we've talked about. I think that's a very succinct and mm. great answer that's really that's really good no i completely agree I think that's great <laughs> um a crikey okay so i think you know the the big the big the the great challenge of our times is the climate crisis 
you know, it's the thing that we can't avoid and we shouldn't attempt to avoid. I think our difficulty is to fall into despair because we don't think that enough is being done quickly enough. And that's part of the challenge is we need to do this at pace, at scale and at pace. And so far, it very often looks like we are failing to do either. But, you know, to borrow from that cliche from William Gibson, um, the future is here already. It's just not widely distributed. Mm -hmm. And I see lots of things that make me feel very hopeful that actually there are things, there are businesses that you look at that business, you think, yeah, that's an answer. It is providing something of a solution. Or I see bits of policy. Again, they might not be a totality of it, but they're all contributing. So it's how do we aggregate those things? How do we take those little bits that we can see that are really promising, bring those together mm. so that they are actually making that bigger, bigger system change? And I think Pippa's right that, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And sometimes that's a sort of accidental habit that we kind of keep looking for a perfection that doesn't exist. And sometimes we have people who are trying to throw in perfection, like a whataboutism, kind of, you know, what about this? It isn't quite perfect. Well, yeah, okay, but it's good enough. You know, it will get us where we need to go. And then I think we need to just widen our imagination to evolve that, you know, we make democratic decisions as the center of what we want to do and then make the markets work to those, not what we seem to be in at the moment, which is, you know, our democracy is adjusted to accommodate the market. And, but like we've discussed, I've seen lots of examples of where we could do different and better. And so it's about how we make that is our next challenge. Yeah, no, I think that, that fantastic points for both of you, great points to end on. Um, so thank you very much both joining us and um, I look forward to catching up with you guys in the future to find out sort of how things are going and um, what else is sort of we've uncovered or is happening in the sort of agricultural world and it'd be really interesting to see how some of these policies and things that are coming out will actually implement change and whether or not they work kind of in the way we hope and what will happen from the government side in response to some of them. Mm -hmm. But I also I think it's been really interesting to see that there are actually, you know, there's a lot of ideas to sort of tackle these problems. And I think that one of the things we've sort of noted clearly throughout is that there's sort of a myriad of solutions and there's no one that sort of stands out as, as our saving grace. But being conscious of that and understanding that is like one of the most important things we can kind of convey um, mm. and, and sort of, you know, promote wherever we go and try and discuss with people as best we can. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Noah. And um, thank you. yeah, I'll let you know when everything comes out. Perfect. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you, Pepper. Pleasure speaking with you. Sorry to interrupt, but this episode is sponsored by Water Offsets. If you are working on projects where you might need environmental credits, then they are the people to go to. They specialize in not only biodiversity net gain credits, but also water neutrality and nutrient neutrality too. So if you have an estate, a farm, or some other kind of landowner, um, or interested in that kind of project, then they could really help you find you know, new ways of funding those projects and diversifying your land and farms take you through the whole process. And if you're a developer who's run into problems, then actually they can help provide those credits that you need to unlock your land and get your development done. So check out Water Offsets if you need help with any of those things. Many thanks.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in finding out more about farming and food and its relationship with ecology, why don't you check out our episode with Merrick Denton Thompson, where we talk about just that. Don't forget to subscribe and share to friends and colleagues who might be interested. And a huge thank you to our incredible sponsors, Marshalls, Water Offsets and Vectorworks, our kind supporters, Gillian Goodson Design and the Birmingham Botanical Gardens, and of course, NDLA and Monster Don for powering this episode, as well as a big thank you to the University of Gloucestershire for letting us film on their campus. So thank you so much and um, see you next time. <laughs>